Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. Hey, y'all. Chase Thomas podcast is back. The full ride here on this Wednesday night edition of the full ride here on the Chase Thomas podcast. I like to repeat myself because, you know, the folks miss it the first time. You got to you got to bring it back. But fellow University of North Georgia alumni, Matt Green is in the house. Uh, we're on YouTube.com. Uh, just check out Chase Thomas podcast and you can see uh, some mighty fine authentic goods outsider merch, the home team, along with some great Atlanta Braves merch behind us. We got the the no banner doubt. on both sides. There's some nasty no red and black stuff on the other side of you. But you do have a University of North Georgia hoodie. If I'd known you were going to wear this, I would have gotten the the old crew neck out. For sure. And we could have matched. Yeah. I'll bring it, was, it next week. It was almost embarrassing uh, how, <laughs> how easy it was to find. Like, it couldn't have been more front and center hanging up in my closet. I'm like, mm-hmm. I swear I've looked for this thing. But, um... I was worried it was lost, but yeah. So I decided to rep the uh, rep the alumni. Alumnus, How, uh, alum. I, uh, I think we're I the correct the correct verbiage. Well, in that sentence, I think uh, I, I, uh, I guess it would be that would be rep my alma mater. Yeah, that would be alma mater. A, yeah, there you go. We are both alumni, and I am an alum, and you are an alum. I think that's how it all works. What I is alumnus? That, when does that get used? I don't know. I think it's that's just like kind of hoity-toity to me, it right? Feels it's, like it. Like someone who says I'm an alumnus of so-and-so. That's like someone who, if I'm an alumnus, that means I'm an alumnus from like Harvard. I don't think that's something you say. I'm like an alumnus from uh, Nebraska. It's a little weird to, no offense to the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, but I don't know. I feel like that's a weird way of phrasing it uh, if that's the case. But um, is that the only uh, North Georgia merch that you got? What uh, what else do you got? Because like, we we saw before we got started, Tori's got the no, still undefeated I t-shirt. Have, I also have the one... I have two versions of it, actually. Mm. The one that university was spelled wrong. Did you ever yeah. see that one? No. It's like a I circle. <laughs> it's a cool shirt. That's why I got it. It's like a circle, and it's got that, like, it's just mm-hmm. gray. The logo's blue, and it's got mm. that, like, that modern Nighthawk logo yeah. kind of. Okay. It's like University of North Georgia, like, in a circle around it. Mm. But they misspelled it. Like, I think they swapped, like, where the T and the I are or something. Mm-hmm. And so I have both shirts because the one kid was in my in one of my, uh, like, broadcast classes and he was like looking at my shirt and he's like it's spelled wrong so we like did like a story on it for like our broadcast or like had footage of like the the shirt being spelled wrong and got like uh, a whole thing about it It just the hard-hitting journalism you know was i still there at the time or was i gone no or was this before me that'd have been after you yeah okay i was gonna say was this bc or uh ac conti sheila conti's class she was a she was a good one. I never had her. I don't know who that is. She must have came in after I was yeah, gone. Yeah, she too. was in after. She worked at like CNN and stuff. Hmm. Okay. Um, no progress on the Nesbit renaming front. I can report <laughs> <laughs> to this point, Matt Green, but we're working on it um, as this podcast continues to grow here on uh, the Chase Homes Podcast. But again, just go ahead and subscribe where you can see Matt and myself here on the full ride on YouTube. So just go look it up, Chase Thomas Podcast, YouTube, and subscribe today. Um, Matt, what, uh, what's been going on? How was your week? How, how have things been since the last time we spoke? We saw Maddox hop up there. He's gained another 50 pounds since I last saw him. It's a big Way dog. How dare you, sir? He's, he's, he's big, but he's, uh, he's still nice and nice and toit. Mm-hmm. Uh, toit like a tiger. Um, 
He, uh, yeah, I've been good. This is mm-hmm. like the worst time of the year for for uh, sports. I've discovered, like, not just discovered, but hmm. I'm. It's, you think it's worse in the summer? It's. I guess I'm just a big baseball fan. Summer, I guess you have summer, so it's like that's like another <laughs> thing you can do. Like winter, okay. we're all just like cooped up in our houses, or cold and miserable. The mm-hmm. NFL's off for like two weeks, and we're all just mm-hmm. waiting on one game anyway. It's like the mm-hmm. Super Bowl. As cool as the Super Bowl is, it's just one game. It's not as cool as just like any any normal NFL weekend where you have like eight games going on, you know? Yeah. But it's it's like a cool thing. Obviously, it's a big game. Decide who the best team is. But it's like now is when I'm I'm getting into like, okay, I guess it, like this NBA season, it's just – I feel like I can't get excited about the NBA right now. It's just so many players out for various reasons. It's just – it's kind of college basketball I'm trying to get into. It's like – Cause it's that time of the year, all the football is over. I don't know. It's just, it feels like such a, such a boring sports time of the year. I don't know. Uh, I like it for me. I mean, I'm obviously a big NBA guy and I watch a lot of college hoops too, but I mean, I'm excited for college baseball to be back. You know, it's back in less than a week or a little over a week, Matt Green. Like um, I know you uh, being a fan of a school that's not about uh, all sports, but here at the University of Tennessee, hey, Knoxville, ranked man, they're like mm-hmm. preseason ranked, so they're they're respectable. Well, Maybe no, I'm higher saying, than Tennessee, right? I think you're like one spot ahead of us um, as of right Aren't now. You but guys are supposed to be a baseball school. What's going on? We're not a baseball school. We're a hashtag everything school. That is what we are. <laughs> um, rowing, everything women's basketball, men's basketball. Uh, well, we'll get into football because that's back. Like uh, I tweeted about it this morning. Like, do you know how you want to start your morning, Matt Green? You want to start your morning a on Rocky Top. Can't go wrong there. But you also want to start your morning on uh, ESPN.com, where you can see Bill Connolly's latest S and P Plus projections. Who I have his football study hall book uh, right over there on the bookshelf, and I've been I'm a longtime fan of Bill, and he does great work. And just seeing Tennessee Vols in the top ten for 2022 is just uh, I was, I was, I was not well, Matt. I was, I was like, oh, oh, this is happening. The the numbers don't lie, and the the numbers bear it out. Like it's the proof is in the pudding. I don't know how many other examples I can say here, but I, I'm excited, and we'll we'll get into uh, the S and P plus. Actually, you know what? Let's just do that now. Let's let's hit the S and P plus projections now, Matt Green, because um, for the folks that have not checked it out, just hit up ESPN.com. You'll find the link to all 131 rankings. Um, pretty fascinating. It's not like a set in stone where like, this is how it's going to go. Um, and things might change with more portal stuff. Injuries, obviously a thing, but I, uh, I thought this was pretty fascinating and it's not like, um, there's a bunch of stuff on there that you have to really hate unless you're like a wake forest fan and you're like, still no respect. Um, cause the numbers do not like wake forest in this one, but, uh, Tennessee coming in just behind your Georgia Bulldogs at number two. And the Ohio State Buckeyes at number one in offensive S and P plus projections for 2022. That is big time. And if this defense was not 42nd or something in defensive S and P plus, Tennessee's like they're they're a top. I mean they're and they're flirting with the top five at that point because the offense isn't getting any worse. But if you get that defense in the top 25, sir, sir, I'm not saying Kirby's shaking, but. I'm also not not saying Kirby shake it down there. Well, we know how important the offensive side of the ball is to mm-hmm. in college football. So, like, if they do say have like by whatever metric, you know, it's so hard to measure what what metric is it total yards, is it points allowed? You know, there's a lot of different ways to measure defense, but 
by whatever metric you determine if they do truly have the 42nd best defense in college football and they do have a top five offense, like that Tennessee team is going to be dangerous, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's, that's a reasonable thing to expect from them this year. And I think, especially with everything going on in the East, like it's, it, it, Tennessee should definitely be, should have their sights on being the second best team in the, in the East this year. What I was more shocked by, like, did this surprise you to see Georgia at two in offensive SP plus and and see? Alabama I mean, the offense was explosive. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's probably just because, I mean, they still have the uncertainty at running back. They're replacing a lot of production at wide receiver still. I mean, number four is not anything to scoff at, but um, it's not like it's just a slam seeing dunk. Georgia above Alabama. I feel like was surprising. I don't know. I, I think that. <sighs> I don't know. I, I it's not enough that it's a disparity that I'm like, wow. It's not like a number two and number eleven or or something yeah. like number two, number four. It's not a lot, and I'm sure the numbers. If you get down into the nitty gritty, that it's not. Uh, it's not all that different. But who else jumped out to you? Because for me, I mean, Tennessee being in the top ten, obviously, we cannot emphasize that enough. So if you were a, um, so all the transfer kids or kids who are unhappy at their school right now, and you're listening to this very podcast, just remember, um, Tennessee retains their defensive uh, back coaches. Like that's something that's important. Willie Martinez stays on the staff here in Knoxville. Willie Martinez. That cannot uh, be said about uh, certain schools down there in Athens, which we'll get to. Um, And I'll ask you about which one should, or who Tennessee should really focus on, who coach Willie should focus on pulling out of the portal um, in the coming days out of Athens. Um, A lot of talent in that defensive backfield. So I'm excited to see what Tennessee is able to drop up there. But anywho. uh, (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, yeah. In, in terms of what your original question was before you went on and on about whatever that was um mississippi state was the team that surprised me at 12 okay. because i don't know i'm just not too high with what the sec west looks like like obviously there's a lot of uncertainty in the west but i just i don't see mississippi state being that team that rises up like amid the uncertainty like i see like a and m should be probably the second best team. And what are they? They're five, six mm-hmm. in here. Um, and then I, like, I don't, do you think Mississippi state's the third best team in the West? Like, <sighs> like you have LSU, you have Arkansas, like, well, I don't think LSU is going to be there yet. Seem... Well, I think it's partly because Mississippi state brings back a lot of talent. Uh, Will Rogers is still back. Um, it's year three with Leach. Um, there's the familiarity there with the air raid. They're going to beat some teams they shouldn't beat. That's just what Mississippi State does under Mike Leach year over year. Um, so Auburn's in disarray, and we'll get into Auburn in a second, and that changes by the hour, um, which is just phenomenal content. But um, I was I don't refreshing. Know. Like as we're starting, I'm like he's he's still got his job, right? But uh, the report today on them changing the rule. Did you see that the document that got added today? On the Auburn website that Bud Elliott tweeted out? What's that? Oh, uh, you've got to look at that while I'm breaking this down. Just look up Bud Elliott's timeline. All right, I'll and, check that out. Um, but yeah, just Auburn's an absolute mess at the moment. So when you look at Auburn, you look at Ole Miss having to replace Matt Corral. Um, that's a big what if. Like Jackson Dart should be a great player uh, right away for them, but still a wait and see a little bit. They lost Jeff Levy. Uh, to Oklahoma we'll see um, what that does for this offense um, they also lost to DC and I think Lane's brother who was the Kansas City or what is he the Kansas City Chiefs linebacker coach or something um, Chris Kiffin so he moves uh, to coach with his brother um, as a co-DC in, in Oxford but 
I don't know. When you look up and down, like LSU's not there yet. Like Kelly will get them there, obviously. But there is kind of an opening. Like unless you're like my number two in this co- in this division, I think is still Arkansas. Like Texas A&M has to prove to me that they're above Arkansas next year. Like Arkansas cleaned up in the portal. They're bringing back like they have to replace a, like a lot of wide receiver production, and that's headlined by Traylon Burks being out of there. But they got backs galore. The offensive line's good. They've cleaned up in the portal. They've got KJ Jefferson, a veteran quarterback. They have they kept their coordinators like Barry Odom and uh, Kendall Bryles stayed put. I don't know. I think Arkansas is the second best team in the West right now, which is kind of, I mean, amazing. And Sam Pittman deserves all the praise in the world for that. But I mean, I can see Mississippi State sneaking into that two, three spot next year. I think it's it, the fact that I'm that high on Arkansas. I mean, I, I don't know. Like, is AM's yeah, offense going to be better? At, Arkansas is down there at 28, too. That surprises me because I'm, I'm pretty high on Arkansas going in next year. I'm higher on them than maybe most are. And I think that's why people you know, want this SEC bias, you know, and they're like, oh, every year we got eight teams in the top 25 of SNP. It's because like, this is a guy's trying to rank who the the best mm-hmm. teams actually are. And yeah, at the end of the day, these teams are ranked based on their records and there's not going to be five teams in the SEC West that have a, a nine and three or better record. That's just not how it works. Someone has to lose these games and someone has to go six and six. Someone has to have a losing record. Like, so... This, I think, you know, it tries to show however however well you can really, you know, calculate this offensive and defensive efficiency that Bill Conley tries to do. Um, it's 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 definitely interesting to look at and, and see Kentucky up there even in the top 20. Like Clemson at five kind of stood out to me because like you're like the he's projecting them to have the best events in college football next year, which very much might happen. But and, that offense, and I even, don't know. Definitely statistically too, if yeah. you think about the competition, but I think – that Clemson, like we saw, seen how they recruit. Like, I mean, there's some, there's some big time dudes that got injured last year too. I don't know, 41 offense, like that's a lot of, that's a big gamble because I don't know if that offense is fixed. And they didn't go outside the Clemson family on either recruiting hire. So, I, I don't know. Like, Clemson's a huge wild card to me. But like you said, being the ACC, that that should pay dividends for them. But I'll say. It, it warmed my heart to see the South Carolina Gamecocks down there at 49th behind <laughs> Oregon State. So the South Carolina fans, man, um, let's go ahead and pump the brakes because the Florida Gators up there at 18, you've got uh, Kentucky ahead of them. And then you got uh, Missouri all the way down here at 54th. And they just lost Steve Wilkes, their DC to the Carolina Panthers earlier today. But man, I'm telling you, like the, the, the Kool-Aid that people have been drinking about uh, this south carolina gamecocks team in 2022 just seeing my tennessee volunteers up there in the top 10 and then seeing uh the mizzou tigers and the uh even kentucky How about being behind LSU us down there at 45 too i think it's because lsu is an unknown like they i mean they don't have a tight end at the moment which is a problem so they missed out on the portal remember the dude um that brian kelly was dancing with the latest one with the, the yeah. great he didn't even get him like that was a five star kid who ended up not even going to uh, I think he chose Bama, right? I think so. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that kind of embarrassment. But I don't think they're there yet. It's going to take some time for for Swag Kelly down there and uh, Bayou. But ultimately, Swag I think that's it. Up. Kelly. <laughs> I think uh, I think we got some time on that one. Uh, if you're a fan of like, let me throw a team like Northwestern. You're like, uh oh, are we in for another bad year? If you're a fan of. Let's throw this one out here. Colorado yeah, at 102. Does Northwestern ever approach a season that way? Like, well, I mean, they're just, they're just happy that Pat Fitzgerald's still there. They're just, I guess. 
But um, hey, we should maybe, also throw maybe out. this will be a good year. Maybe it won't be. Oh, oh well. Carl Durrell and uh, Jeff Collins. I hope you're winning because I the numbers do not do not favor uh, what kind of season you're going to have, and you're kind of in win now mode for both those programs. So uh, I don't think those two gold domed schools are are on the precipice of greatness in 2022. But it's just another. Another perspective from a really, really smart college football mind. So go check that out, Bill Connolly on ESPN.com, because I thought it was, it was great and really illuminating. And that's not just because I'm biased to see the Tennessee Volunteers in there in the top 10. Um, Matt Green, let's hit on the Brian Harson stuff. So this story is ever-changing. It's something that I cannot believe is still happening. I don't like after this podcast goes up um, tomorrow morning, like what uh, what the state will be for Auburn. He Brian Harson might get relieved of his duties tonight. He might get relieved of his duties while he's here. He might get a contract extension uh, while we're recording this podcast. I don't really know what's happening here. Um, this is all insane to me. What's happening at Auburn, and it's all playing out publicly, which is not what you want. Um, there's a huge disconnect between the boosters and the AD who's walking out, the president who's walking out. Like there is just I. No one knows who's running Auburn right now, which is never a good sign. But I also can't uh, talk too much about that because Tennessee has suffered from the same sort of dysfunction in the past of like who's actually running uh, the University of Tennessee um, athletics department. And, you know, I think this is pretty wild. But like, here's an excerpt from like, oh, Brian Harson was clearly never going to work at uh, Auburn. So let me pull this from espn.com from a couple days ago really good piece uh it was the multitude it was, it was like thamel and a couple other uh espn college football writers who all worked on this particular piece um quote in may he skipped the 1985 heisman trophy winner bo jackson's charity golf tournament leaving two assistants to speak in his absence which peeved several big donors seems like a bad move when you're a first year coach at auburn to not go to bo jackson's charity golf tournament that might yeah. be one you don't skip um why, and then why would you i mean just what are you doing this is like a basic one and this one also stood out to me uh quote this past week he skipped an event hosted by the georgia athletic coaches association in macon where state championship winning high school coaches were honored georgia's kirby smart tennessee's josh heupel florida state's mike Nor- mike norvell and south carolina's shane beamer were among the head coaches who attended guess who wasn't there brian harson what is he do? Is he trying to get fired? Like he hasn't like gotten involved. Like he has just been an outsider and has made no effort to uh, seemingly made no effort to be part of the Auburn SEC coach family, like for better or worse. Like, what did you think this job was? Like, how did you think they was going to play you skipping Bo Jackson's charity golf tournament? Like, why are you skipping the GHSA like events? where Kirby and every other big Southern coach is at, like, what, what are you doing? Like, are you intentionally trying to sabotage yourself? Um, I don't know. This piece on ESPN was just wild. And like, he's been an arduous, like, we're not going to cheat stuff, which is good, but like, okay, well, you also recruited like crap this first cycle. So man, I, I would not be surprised if Kevin Steele is the head coach of the Auburn Tigers by this <laughs> by Friday. Like I nothing would surprise me, but this man, his actions, it seems like he has had no interest in uh, being the long term coach at the at Auburn University. I I this story just gets crazier and crazier, man. Can we just talk about the fact this man was on vacation? Yeah. <laughs> 
I, I think he's still on vacation. Is he back? I don't think he's back. I think they said he came back from vacation today. Okay. Um, but I don't know. For some reason, that just made the story even funnier to me. <laughs> just like I imagine him and like I think I, I think he's in Mexico. Was, yeah, that's where it was, right? I just meant mm. like Cayman Islands or something. Mm. But yeah, somewhere in the Caribbean, right? And just like just being just you know bombarded with notifications and everything like that. Like I don't know. That's just funny to me. But. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what Auburn is going to do. I, I heard Chuck Oliver talking about it on uh, on 680. And, you know, he's an Auburn guy. Mm-hmm. And he made it sound like basically the, the big-time donors who basically run Auburn didn't get their way with the Brian Har- Harson hire. And mm-hmm. now they're like, instead of, you know, throwing him a, a, a lifeline, they're like <laughs> letting him letting it get as bad as it can possibly get. Like they're essentially letting him drown. It's kind of how Chuck Oliver made it sound. So, I don't know what's going to happen, like what that means exactly. Because at this point, Auburn looks bad to go down and hire a coach right now. So does that just mean whatever? He's just he's lost all credibility with the pro with the with the with the donors and everybody. But we're just going to let him go out there and coach this team the whole season, and then just have a plan for who we're going to get after next season, like. If you hire a coach right now, I don't know. That almost feels worse. Like you're not going to get a, you're not going to get the coach you want to get right now. Like I, that, all those guys. Well, I mean, if you're Bill Clark, you decision. take that, right? Like if you're Bill Clark, you take you take this job. Yeah, for sure, and that that would be a good person without a doubt to get. But I don't know. I just I wonder if like if Bill Clark was going to go somewhere like it would have already happened through this cycle. Like this cycle kind of seems over. I mean, granted there's still an NFL game to be played. So we've seen like, like we're going to talk about like Georgia's coach going to to Miami. There's obviously still some shaking in the coaching carousel to happen, but um, it feels really late in the process to, to hire a head coach and think that this is going to be a good, like, like long-term hire. Well, I mean, you don't really have a choice. Like the fact that it's played out publicly like this, like if you're Brian Harson, like you know your days are numbered anyway. Like the donors don't want you. The fans now are split. They're just like, this dude's not an Auburn guy. Like there's just no reason to keep this going. Like once the the dam breaks like this, I think you just kind of have to eat you just have to eat it and be like, Wow, we are screwed for next year. Like we're just screwed. Like we <laughs> we messed up here. But also, I just wonder like what the vetting was like where Hey, Brian, you know, you're going to have to play the SEC game. Like you can't bring the Boise stuff here. Like that's just not going to play in Alabama. Like it, I, I just imagine him just thinking that he could just be the Boise coach. He could just. Yeah, I think the only way that works is if a guy is just like so strong in what mm-hmm. he does. He's like so different, like like an Urban Meyer, like yeah, that stuff's not going to work and come down to the SEC. But he was just such a confident coach in his abilities and everything. It seemed like, obviously we know how it play, played out and Florida was great under Urban Meyer, but like Harson, like what, what is he, what is Boise state's identity? Like just being like good hard nosed football. Like, yeah, it's not necessarily like the, the old school BYU, even like run and gun type stuff. Um, why am I blanking on that old school head coach's name? You know who I'm talking about? Like the legendary coach, the stadium's named after him. Oh, Lavelle uh, Edwards. Yes. Like those days or something. It's not like he is like coming in with like some kind of huge track record. Like even like, even a Mike Leach. Like it's, he's just kind of like Boise State is just a solid program. 
but there's nothing they really did that was anything special. So you're going to come to Auburn. You have to get to be a part of the culture. Like you have to do something. And he doesn't, you know, as we're from, you know, 15,000 feet or whatever, whatever mm-hmm. the expression is. So we don't know yeah. exactly what's going on inside the locker room and every, everything, but, and, and you hear about the, tr- the tra- player transferring and had a, a bunch of bad things to say them being treated like dogs or whatever. It's also a player that's transferring, you know, that's not necessarily a guy like transfers don't always speak the most fondly of a program. Like things didn't go well for him at Auburn. Right. So I kind of take that with a grain of salt, but just the the optics, the PR right now, it just it couldn't be any worse for Auburn. What do you think ultimately happens uh, late on a on the on February 9th, Matt Green? How do you see this playing out? Do you think Brian Harson keeps his job, or do you think Auburn uh, fires him? I think I'll tell you what I think, and then you can. I, I think he gets fired with cause, and it's an absolute mess, and <laughs> it doesn't work out that way. And Before then the season it, starts, yeah, I think it's like this weekend. I, I don't think. <laughs> yeah, I think this is over. Like, you cannot drag uh, this on. You cannot have spring practice and have like a spring game in a couple months with this man. Like, that's not how ha- Auburn is just the SEC is a different beast. Like, once the tide has turned on somebody, like, it's over. Like, you have to change gears. You just have to be like, well, the he's been rejected. This is awful. And the donors won. So now you have to pivot back to what the donors want. And I mean, it's time. Kevin Steele, your next payday, my friend. Let's bring him back to the SEC. Hey, if they just need a, if they just need a guy for a year, yeah. Ed Orgeron. Ed Orgeron, you beat me to it, man. That's the interim that would be amazing. And then that they're going to be, be like, after everyone's like, <laughs> you know what? We kind of like this guy. <laughs> we like his vibe. Uh, he's not scared of saving. Um, but no, that would be... And Orgeron uh, and Auburn would be hilarious for a one-year yeah, contract. Classic. Hugh Freeze. When's Hugh Freeze just going to get the job? Like, people... We've been talking about Hugh Freeze to Auburn for, like, five years now. Like, it's it's got to happen at some point. Um, well, what do you think happens? Do you think he loses it? What's your prediction? Your official prediction here on the floor oh, right now? Oh, man. Matt? You're making me worry saying he's going to get fired this week. But um, I tend to feel like he's going to be the coach this season. Okay. Like, I just... This might seem bad from the outside, but I don't know. We'll we'll see what happens. It's just it's hard to it's hard to fire someone in in the middle of February. So we'll we'll see. But yeah, if I had to go on record, I'm saying he's the coach in 2022. Start the season at least. Okay, I like it. I like it. Um, I love that. So the the good friends over there at On Three uh, partners with uh, Outsider check the lid but uh, go subscribe to on three if you've not already done so uh they compiled uh all the coordinator changes this cycle matt this is preposterous there have been so many changes man like i knew there were a lot and then i looked through this and i was just i i just cannot believe how many there were um there were 29 coaching changes in the fbf ranks this cycle that's insane in in this cycle um, 62 FBS coaches, that's 48% of the 130, have changed offensive coordinators, including 11 of the 14 and the eight, 11 of 14 coaches in the SC, in the ACC changed uh, OCs this offseason. Nine in the CUSA, seven in the AAC. Um, there have been 54 defensive coordinator changes with seven in each in the ACC, Pac-12, and SEC, and six in the Big Ten. This is preposterous. This kind of turnover is insane man 
Yeah, it really is. I felt like I was just scrolling all of the division one football teams. Like mm-hmm. when you, you're like at this list of the new coordinators, it was like literally every team just scrolling. Although Georgia, I noticed was not on here. And yeah. that's another team that's got a new defensive coordinator or this is just offensive coordinators, right? No, Georgia's on there. I'm telling you, you didn't scroll enough. You got to go down. Georgia's on there. Are they sorted with the offensive corner and then the defensive corner? Oh, that's what it is. Yes. Jeez. This is a ridiculous. This is what I'm saying. Like you keep going and you're like, am I done? Nope. That's only the OCs. Yeah. Yeah. It really is an insane list here. Um, This is just, and this is where we are. This is why we have to do something about the college football timeline because so like you, you tell every single recruit don't, you know, don't commit to the coach, commit to the university. Like, okay, whatever. We know these guys are committing to coaches and like we know how much head coaches change, but these position coach, like that's, that's who guys are like really committing to lots of times because that's, who's going to coach them directly. And these position coaches, like these big time programs rarely have a position coach. I would say for more than two or three years, like they're either a coordinator at that school or they they've gone somewhere else to be a coordinator. It's just, you know, no, no hate against uh, these guys for, you know, getting the best opportunity for themselves. But that's just why we had to do something about college football. So it's not just a wild, wild West, just ridiculous news cycle the entire 365 days a year. I, uh, I don't know, man, this is a lot. And if you're a casual football fan, you're out. Like you can't keep up with all this. Like if you're not doing a podcast, Matt Green, like you and myself, if we're, if you're not a college football junkie like us, you're going to be perplexed all this fall. You're going to be like, wait, who he's there now? Wait, where is he? Like that, there is going to be an unending game of where is this guy? It's like the Charles Barkley NBA on TNT game where it's like, who he play for? That's what's going to happen in college football. But it's like the players, the coaches, just everything. It's like, who is this pro? Like, that's where they ended up. Like, Gene Chizik's just going to be roaming the sidelines for North Carolina this fall on, de- on defense. And you're like, what is he doing? And you're like, oh, yeah. right. See, that's what I'm saying. You forgot that's, that. That happened. That's a good call. Gene Chizik. I totally forgot about that. I um, I don't know, but I am curious. Like, is there one name on offense that stands out to you? And is there one name on defense? Who do you think is the most interesting? Who is there a team? Is there a, oh, uh, a change? Um, You, you start. You go first. Um, I'll say on offense, I think the most interesting for me would probably be Lance Taylor at Louisville, because I think, um, he, for folks that don't know, he's been a great running backs coach at Notre Dame for the last several years with Brian Kelly, and he's done great work. Notre Dame has been able to produce a lot of great talent in the backfield and guess who Louisville just got? Tion Evans um, from Tennessee, who had a lot of success. So I think with Cunningham and Evans, I think Lance Taylor is going to put together um, a game plan and a, and just a, a scheme for Louisville to get back on track with that offense. I think that stands out to me uh, a oh, you lot. Know one one I like uh, on offense is uh, is Mark Whipple, yeah, in Nebraska, because Scott Frost is is not dead yet, right? Like, yeah, so. If we saw what he did at Pitt, and Pitt is just so not the team that's known for being what top five in the country in points per game. Like they were number one for most of the season, and I, I feel like you had to you know double take when you saw Pittsburgh up there averaging forty eight points a game. Mm-hmm. So if Nebraska, if he can do anything remotely close to that in Nebraska, 
like it doesn't feel like Nebraska is capable of getting away from like the triple option and having like this, like they they don't run that offense anymore. But they've got the same quarterback that they've all like that would run that offense forever. It feels like you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. They just that their quarterback is always a limited passer who can who can run around and make some plays. So if they can get away from that and actually have an explosive like passing offense, like I'd be really interested to see how good Nebraska could be next year. Let's also throw Texas Tech in the list because Joe McGuire hired uh, Zach Kitley from Western Kentucky, who just put on a clinic uh, this past year with the the Hilltoppers. So I think the the running gun, uh, the air raid rather, and just that um, that's my gunshot here on the podcast. Uh, so I think the Red Raiders will be back to <laughs> that's that, what that was. That's what that was. Um, I think oh, on man. DC. I think what stands out to me the most um, is Ohio State and Oklahoma. And it's for one good, one bad. I think going from Kerry Coombs to um, Jim Knowles is huge. Like I think Ohio State is should be the favorite to win the national title next year. And part of that is Jim Knowles coming over from Oklahoma State. And that's just such a slam dunk hire and such a great move because Oklahoma State has been a defense first team for years now. And he has done such a good job in Stillwater that I I just love that fit and love him in, in uh, Columbus. And then on the opposite side, like Ted Roof, I, I just, he's been bad everywhere in Oklahoma. And Brent Venables, like I'm sure he's going to call the defense and stuff, but that would scare me a bit if I'm an Oklahoma fan. Like, you know, Ted Roof back in the Dortech days and the Wake days and everything. But like, man, I don't know. Ted Roof was just a weird one for, for uh, Oklahoma to go with. Yeah, I think Oklahoma fans just kind of have a perception of exactly where they're going to finish every year. Mm. They might be in a rude, in for a rude awakening this year. Like they're mm-hmm. not. I don't see them being the best team in the Big Twelve this season. Like I don't. And might be some Venables, leaks in the roof. It's just <laughs> and Venables is just such a question mark. Like we have mm-hmm. no idea how good of a head coach this guy is. Um, but to your point, um, I, I like yeah uh, Jim Knowles from Oklahoma State, but also kind of touching on what we were previously talking about Derek Mason. Now we've learned mm. took a $400,000 pay cut Goodness to go to, gracious. Go to Oklahoma state from Auburn. So Derek Mason knew he knew what was coming, <laughs> right? Exactly. So, and, and so, and for Oklahoma state as well, like to, to lose a big time defensive coordinator like that and be able to replace him with a Derek Mason, I think is pretty big and it could go a long way in Oklahoma state potentially winning the big 12 this year. I mean, Baylor should be the favorite, I think, going into I think so. But they were, I mean, they were, what, two inches away from winning the Big 12 this year? Like that that two-point conversion right there at the end. Dave Aranda. Or not uh, two-point conversion, the fourth fourth and goal. I also wouldn't rule out Auburn just being like, blank check to uh, Dave Aranda if uh, there's a move. Like, that's the same dunk. Like, you're just like, hey, we're Auburn, and the big donors are just going to swing their big checkbooks, even though... They'd be. Pay- I think they're going to have to pay if they can't get Carson out with cause. It's some. It's upwards of like forty million dollars in buyout money between Malzahn and Harson. Like it's preposterous. I'm just, I'm just not sure how, like how much of a slam dunk Auburn is. Like if you're a coach, if you're a coach that's in a good position wherever you are, like Dave Aranda, Baylor is not a powerhouse. Like Baylor, could you win a national championship at Baylor? 
I don't know. It's debatable. You could be, you could get to the college football playoff at Baylor. Yes, you can. You can, so you can do definitely that. do that. And what's easier to get to the college football at playoff, Baylor or Auburn? But Auburn is just this weird position of have just where they sit with Georgia and Alabama and in the SEC West, and they don't shy away from scheduling non big time non conference games either. Their schedule every year is just kind of absurd. They have a fan base that. You know, we don't know, not necessarily the fan base, but these these donors, you know, the big time mm-hmm. people that pull the strings. It feels that feels toxic, like from an outside perspective. So Auburn just might not be that attractive unless you just really want to get in the SEC, which some guys might. But Dave Aranda's one at the end of next season, if Auburn comes calling, like he's probably looking, taking a, cons- a serious consideration to that. But right here after the second national signing day, like what a month before spring practice is going to start, like to jump ship and go to Auburn, like with everything they got going on. Like, I don't, I don't know how many guys would necessarily just jump ship to go to Auburn right now. That's fair. Um, that's how why many attractive coaches at least. That's why you do an interim. I mean, Kevin Steele is going to be the guy. I'm telling you, Kevin Steele is coming back. He just got the Maryland or uh, the Miami DC job, even though he That's, just took the Maryland job and then he yeah, moved over okay. to Miami. That man is just like, I'm going to get a check from every university in the United <laughs> States of America. Kevin Steele is a legend, man. That dude got a million dollars from the University of Tennessee for a month of just being around, uh, theoretically. Um, <laughs> it was it was incredible. Um, all that being said, now it's before we get into uh, some South Carolina Gamecock slander uh, to wrap up on this podcast where we do the the full perspective uh, for every SEC team as we uh, hit this offseason running. Um, let's hit on the, your Georgia Bulldogs. Great news out of Athens this week. Um, the Death Star has a chink in the armor a little bit. As, uh, Is that right? I mean, your number one recruiter, the number one recruiter at the University of Georgia, out, pulled away. By, the number uh, one recruiter for the 2022 class. Like, yeah, okay, Jeff, I'm glad you Jeff. mentioned that. Yeah, so can I read this to you? Okay. Wait, what's that? From 247 Sports. I think this was, yeah, Dogs 247. Quote, in his first year since coming to Georgia from West Virginia, a die, is, it's a die, right? Yeah. Or is it a day? Yeah, okay. Um, emerged as a strong recruiter, landing three five stars and two four stars as the primary recruiter of record. Adai was also the primary recruiter for five-star cornerback Jaheim uh, Singletary, five-star edge Marvin Jones Jr., five-star cornerback Dalen Everett, four-star cornerback Julian Humphrey, and four-star safety Jacory Thomas. Um, just fantastic stuff across the board here. Yeah, that's uh, strong, man. He's a uh, he's a Flor- South Florida guy too, so you know Miami came came calling. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind I of a stat that Cristobal's putting together, man. Cristobal, yeah, for sure. I think it's kind of surprising to see a DB coach leave Georgia just to be the DB coach at a place like Miami. Like it, it doesn't even seem like a lateral move. Like it's a, clearly a not as good of a program right now. Um, it's like several steps down. Like if he went somewhere like a an Oklahoma or Ohio State, you know. It's a lateral move, but you know, to each their own, right? Even even a Florida, it seems more big time than Miami right now. I mean, mm. that's debatable, I guess you could say. But regardless, um, Jamel Dye is definitely a, a a good a good defensive backs coach. I think it's just with what Georgia's built, he was there for one year, right? This wasn't the one of the guys, one of the original guys that Kirby had over. And Kirby's specialty is defensive backs. Like Will Muschamp is specialty is basically defensive backs. So I feel like with with 
you heard so many of these guys. I think it was either Singletary or Humphrey. One of those, Jamela Dime may have been the main recruiter, but you heard a lot of guys talk about Will Muschamp when they committed to Georgia too. So I think um, I think Georgia's in a good spot. I, you, they've talked about, I know I've heard, was it Marcus Woodson from Florida State and Zach Etheridge from Auburn as to potential replacements. I don't even think it's that big of a deal, honestly. I think if there was a position you would be like the most confident about replacing under Kirby Smart, it would probably be the defensive backs. So I, I think the just the defensive side of the ball in general, Kirby seems to always kind of have a plan in place on where he wants to go next. So I don't know. I, I think um, it's obviously a great coach to lose in like that South Florida area. Like you want to always have guys who can recruit that area. But um, yeah, I was definitely surprised to to see him go and not be like a an actual DC job. Yeah, well, it seems like it was just going home and uh, just going to South Florida. He probably wouldn't have left for any other kind of position at this point, um, especially for a another DB coach role. So we'll see what happens. But recruits seem pretty okay with Muschamp and Kirby. But it's more responsibility for your guy, Will Muschamp. Georgia fans have to feel weird about that, right? Like with just how ingrained Will Muschamp is in Athens now. It's like, it's kind of funny because he's just spent so many years coaching against Georgia for just right. a variety of SEC teams, just mm-hmm. from LSU, South Carolina, Florida, Auburn. But I don't. He's he's he was ours first, though, right? So there's something cool about now you're fighting over who gets to claim Will Muschamp. It's something I, cool about Muschamp being part of like Kirby's national championship team and everything because because but first and foremost before bus champ went on his journey he was a, he was a georgia bulldog and his son plays for the team now so and then bobo come and be a an analyst and his son is coming to play on the team it's just a just a, a reunion happening in athens good things great happy for you um and brian mcclendon too i don't know yeah. if he, that's happened since we were last were on the podcast i think that's a huge hire for georgia mm. just a you talk about a big time recruiter, like some of Georgia's biggest recruits they got from 2011 to 2014 were, were because of Brian McClendon from Chubb, Michelle, Gurley. Like it's a, it's a long list. Yeah. I think Georgia will be fine. I, I, I think they'll be fine, but it will be interesting to see if uh, they're able to keep matching these kind of recruiting classes in the, the secondary without him. Cause he was, he was big time uh, in his first year on the job. Uh, first recruiting cycle on the job, rather. For sure. That was a, a ridiculous defensive back class that Georgia had with with Starks. He's a number one athlete, but, I mean, he's going to play safety, so basically the number one safety in the country. And, Malachi Starks. Yeah, Malachi Starks mm-hmm. and and Singletary and Everett, two five-star corners, like and Humphrey pretty highly ranked as well. So that's, that's a loaded defensive back class they brought in. Um, well, let's hit on the last thing. I, I forgot you added uh, Texas A&M. You want to have a Jimbo conversation. Like you're just, you're chomping at the bit. You want to, you want to add some, some spice to this podcast and you want to add, uh, you're just, you're dying to give Jimbo, a Jimbo take. Jimbo is my South Carolina. Mm. No, no. You hate South Carolina. I really do. I, it's, <laughs> South Carolina. No. I, I just, to say, Matt, like I've circled Columbia on my calendar this fall. I can't wait to be there. I, I cannot wait to drop 50. I, I just, I can't wait for the 50 burger being dropped in Columbia. I can't wait for the implosion and just uh, the retreat from South Carolina hey, fans we'll and see. all the analysts we'll too. Happens. Yeah. We'll see what happens for sure. So 
we were talking about Georgia and Kirby Smart. Like, mm-hmm. George, that he was by far the coach under the biggest microscope coming into the 2021 season, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there's some, a few coaches out on the hot seat, like Harbaugh or Scott Frost or guys like that. But from a winning a national championship perspective, even more so than Lincoln Riley, which I always, you know, kind of – Lincoln Riley is my South Carolina, actually. I'll take that back. Um but Kirby was more under more scrutiny than anybody. Um, and if you look at what he did in his first four years at Georgia, so lat, with last year, sorry, let me run it back. If you look at what he did his first four years at Georgia, finished unranked, finished second, seventh, fourth, and then followed that up with finishing number seven in 2020. And then he was under this massive amount of pressure, right? That's basically what I'm getting at. So Jimbo Fisher... He's coming into year five now. So far in his first four years, they finished ranked 16th, not ranked, fourth, and not ranked. So is, do we, are we confident he's going to follow that up with a number seven finish like Kirby did in year five and was under so much scrutiny for how well he recruited but not being able to win a national championship, even though Georgia's finishing top seven four years in a row? Like, this is... Now time, like Jimbo Fisher, they just signed this number one class. Like, and I, I do kind of hate how people like, once you sign the number one class, you have to win a national championship. Well, these guys are going to be freshmen. It's, it doesn't make sense to just jump on that, on that, that this class has to do it, right? Like we should, it's, we should be looking two or three years from now on what they become. But this is year five of Jimbo Fisher. So it's not like this is his first recruiting class. Like we're expecting them to become a powerhouse. But I'm just wondering, like, when when does Jimbo Fisher become the most scrutinized coach in college football? Is he already there? Ooh, I I don't know. I mean, it's got to come. But like, I think part of what he gets uh, a break from and that Kirby doesn't get is that your Curry was in the East. Like it was just a little bit different. Like Jimbo has the SEC West. It's like all college football fans understand what he's up against in the West with Bama. Like I, for whatever reason, I think that just that helps things for a little bit. And also this is the best state A&M's ever been in. Like they have never in their history been this good and this loaded uh, from top to bottom. So if you're an A&M fan, you're just like, this is amazing. Like, I don't care at like the concerns about the Johnsons because, you know, Max Johnson comes in and then his brother flips from, uh, where'd he flip from? I think LSU. LSU, I think so. Um, To join up with his brother in uh, college station. But like, I think they want to let it play out for a little while longer because this is insane how they're recruiting. It's just, they, you got to have your fingers crossed for a little bit while longer, but it's also just not the same program that Georgia is. It's not the same program that a lot of those old school blue bloods where it's like the expectations for years was like national titles. And like A&M, when they were in the Big 12, there was no expectation they were going to win a national title. It wasn't like that. Um, so they're new to this big boy football. And I mean... I just, what more do you want? Like, you're not getting anybody better than Jimbo in College Station. You're not getting anybody who's going to bring in this kind of recruiting class outside of Jimbo. Like, you're not, like, this is the best you might be able to get for a long time. And this is kind of like the glory years. And you just keep your fingers crossed that it it ultimately works out on offense and you get the right quarterback. And, um, I mean, you just beat Bama when you had no business beating Alabama last year. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. I think... The, I, I wouldn't say the seat's hot for him. I think um, 
maybe if they have a really down year where it's like seven and five with this class or something based on the last couple, because like you said, you can't base it on this, uh, this most recent one with a bunch of freshmen, but he has been recruiting at an elite level for several years now. So there's a lot of talent on both sides of the ball. I just, my concern would be like, Hey, we got to figure out the quarterback stuff. We got to figure out the offense. The offense can't be like this in year four, year five. Like this has got to get fixed. You're an offensive guy. Like this is, this is not okay. We're not doing this. Tennessee Heupel had no players of his own and like, just Tennessee's already a top 10 offense in college football. Like this is, you have the players. There's no excuse for us to be 41st or whatever in offensive efficiency. Like you gotta, you gotta clean that up, man. Like this is not going to work for us. So outside of that, I don't know. And to be fair, like the people who thought that Kirby smart seat was anywhere remotely hot Mm. coming into last year are just like, you don't know what you're talking about. Cause so many of those points you made right there were, you could easily apply to Georgia, right? It's like, yeah, we hadn't beaten Bama yet, but this is the best Georgia football has ever been. Like, yeah, he's got the same record Mark Richt had first four or five years, but we can all tell how much different it is, right? It's They were recruiting at such a more elite level, like putting more guys in the NFL, just doing a lot of things better. So I just want people to bring that same energy at Jimbo because – They're not going to, though. It's not happening. He was 44 and 12 through the first four years, and Jimbo's 34 and 14. There's probably four or five more games in there, you know, because of the COVID year and the, the um, like last year's bowl game getting canceled. There's probably three or four more wins they could have in there just by games played. But um, so to be fair, this original point was that anyone who is, who is, who is saying either to begin with is just wrong because A&M is in a good position, right? Like they're, they're, they're not in a, they're not in a position where they, they should think Jimbo Fisher needs to win us a championship when the SC West or we're firing him. Like that's just not going to happen. Like they're in a good position, but I'm just trying to keep that same energy. Okay. I mean, you're going to fight this effort. That's good. I, I'm happy for you, but I just, I don't know if you're going to get a bunch of people to, to join in. I think he makes no, it easy sure. when, when he complains and he's just like, I get what he's saying, like where he's backing his coaching staff where he's like, we put in the work. Cause I'm sure they busted their tail on their recruiting trail. Like, I'm sure that's true, but it's also like, just own that it's a combination. Like there's nuance here. It's not like we're saying that you didn't do anything all year and you just threw a bunch of NIL money at these kids, but like I also don't it, pretend it, that they're not, you can't have one without the other that's just silly yeah it feels a little like that's the narrative though right that it's the nil money that's the only reason you guys were getting these recruits like so i can understand him being like a little i was actually kind of more on jimbo's side in that rant because like lane kiffin and nick saban like talk about your own team like keep, keep my name out of your mouth kind of thing like don't worry about what we're doing like you just worry about yourself so this NIL thing is something that anyone can do. And you're at Alabama. You're not, this isn't Akron. You know, this we're, we're talking about, we're not talking about someone who can't compete on Texas A&M's level. They can't throw down money that Texas A&M is throwing down or whatever they are doing. Like, and that, that was the best point I thought Jimbo Fisher made was Nick Saban is bragging about Bryce Young making a million dollars before he's ever played a game. Ohio State is showing that, you know, posting that they had the number one NIL earnings of, of 2021 or, or something among their players. So these people that want parity in college football, they say they want it until a new kid shows up like Texas A&M. They're like, oh, hold on, how did you get here? Who let you in? You know, and I, I can kind of understand Jimbo coming from that perspective because everyone had the ability to to utilize some NIL 
aspect to the recruiting process. I guarantee his coaches busted their tail to recruit this insane class. And and you you've seen like the guys they have on the staff, like James Coley. He was you know highly criticized for his one year as offensive coordinator for Georgia, but he's always been hyped up as a recruiter of the South Florida area. And so he's on the staff. Nick Williams they got from Georgia's staff as a like a grad assistant. I think I don't know what exact position he's in on now, but he's been hyped up as a big time recruiter. And A and M got three three of the top like 10, 15 players I think out of the state of Georgia this year. Like that's that's big time. Uh, a state that the the in state program pretty much locked down more than more than most of the big time uh, states. So. I can I can respect Jimbo getting defensive, but at the same time to be like NIL had nothing to do with it. Well, that's just that's not true either. Like it's so I I, I understood him getting defensive because it's it's at the, if like it is discounting what his coaches did, but at the same time it's obviously part of the equation. For sure, for sure. Um, well, let's wrap with the South Carolina Gamecocks, a state. Uh, the full perspective of the South Carolina Gamecocks, um, the co-coach of the year, the co- newcomer of the year, um, after getting drubbed by the other co-coach of the year uh, in Knoxville, <laughs> You're not where I was. This there. one go? Huh? It's the most ridiculous thing of all time. Like I understand, like he, like the down the stretch stuff and winning the Mayo Bowl and all that great stuff. But it's like, if it came down to it, then you look at the head to head and you're just like, Oh, right. We can't give it to him. And we can't give them both co-coach of the year because one of them literally beat the living crap out of the other one on, on the field. So that is something that happened. Um, but <laughs> to Rattler and a new tight end, they clean up in the portal a little bit. They don't have a 29 year old under center next year. It looks like um, their loss. Yeah. Their loss shot to our guy Zeb. Um, but Look, man, they they overachieved a little bit than what we thought because we saw like what three to four wins potentially for this South Carolina team. I think so. And then you look at 2022 Matt Green and you're like, oh, where are these wins coming? Um, they don't even start off easy. Like Georgia State's not gonna be an easy game um at home, but they'll probably win that one. Then they start with at Arkansas, Georgia at home, and you're like, oh man, like those are just two losses out right off the bat. And then here's this stretch for you at Kentucky, Texas A&M at home, Missouri for homecoming. And then they get Vanderbilt. That's nice. Their last three games are at Florida, Tennessee, and at Clemson. Where are the wins coming? Like this looks like a, I'm counting one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I have seven for sure losses on this schedule. Seven. I don't think they're going bowling. I think South Carolina has a worse record. You heard it here first, folks. I think South Carolina has a worse record next year than they did this past year. And I think, hey, they they did some stuff um, this past year. And shout out to them for uh, doing what they need to do. But hey, do we just forget that they got blow? They got blanked by Clemson, a bad Clemson, a down Clemson team, thirty to yeah. nothing. Um, do we? That's get- what I was thinking. Just going through their twenty twenty one results. Yeah. like we remember that East Carolina game. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, it might be a win in the win loss <laughs> column, but we saw what that team looked like for three quarters and had to pull that out at the very end. Like, beat Vanderbilt by one last year. Like, yeah, they went seven and six, but. Like, oh man, it it could have easily been four and eight, five and seven. Do you know what it is, Matt? I think it's all from the Florida game. I think that's all people remembered. Like that's just it was such a shock and it had such a big ramification 
on Florida. And Auburn, and Auburn too, because I felt like they beat Auburn before Auburn really collapsed, too. Mm-hmm. Like that that was probably part of the collapse is probably because you they lost to South Carolina, but they I don't know. It was just it was a it was a strange year. But I I think you're right though. Florida beating Florida and Auburn, like that's sexy. You're South mm-hmm. Carolina and you just beat Florida and Auburn in the same year. There there's excitement for sure. And you and you won your bowl game, beat North Carolina in the bowl game, like and your coach got doused with mayo. That's what this is really all about. We just he went viral. We all saw the mayo and everyone just loves him for it. Everyone yeah. just loves Shane Beamer. That's what you're just gonna have to deal with. And look, I like Shane Beamer. It's just, can we be honest about where South Carolina is as a program? Can we be honest about what this schedule looks like? Can we be honest about what's on the docket for the next year? And I just look at the schedule, man. Like, is it not a worse schedule than they just had? Like, what count the losses. What do you see right now? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, it's hard to count like the automatic losses. Like I'm definitely saying Arkansas is a guaranteed loss. Yeah. So Arkansas and Georgia, A and M, just because they've never beaten A and M, I think that's a reasonable one. And then Tennessee and Clemson. That's I'm not I'm not saying Florida's an automatic loss because I have no idea what to expect from Florida. But those but on the road, those right there, years, I named I one, two, three. Yeah. I named five losses. I think yes. right off the bat. That's so what I'm saying. Best possible season is seven and five. And that's that's, that's beating Missouri beat and Kentucky. Missouri right? is a swing game. That's Kentucky being a swing game. That's Florida being a swing game. So I don't know. That's and that's obviously having to take care of some of these bad teams out of the at a conference that have tripped up South Carolina, too. So I think um, I think they are moving in the right direction. But um, I think you're just you're just uh, you can't get past the co-coach of the year. Well, it's also just that, like, where are the wins coming? It's like the whole is George Tech making progress. All right. Look at the schedule. Is Vanderbilt going to be OK with Clarkley? Where are the wins coming? Like, they're going to be awful again. Like, he's going to drop. Like, it sounds so good when coach new coaches come in where it's like we're changing the culture, man. I love it when a cult, when a coach comes in. And he's like, we're changing the culture here at South Carolina. We're changing the culture here at Vanderbilt. We're bringing in. Uh, uh, Barton Simmons like that's what we're gonna do we're gonna develop three stars and we're gonna we're gonna grind our way to some some victories we're gonna northwestern Nashville that's what we're doing um and that's great however you're in the SEC and the SEC is not friendly like the SEC is a very much the haves and the have-nots and for better or for worse the SEC East has always been defined for the last 30 years on um, three teams the Tennessee Volunteers, the Georgia Bulldogs, and the Florida Gators. That's it. You have a blip in there with South Carolina, the one Stephen Garcia year. You have Mizzou that early. It's not just a blip, though. It's like a, a period of time. South Carolina was a legit contender for like four or five years in a row there. Contenders I mean, they doing a lot of work there. They won They won the East, and then the next three years they won 11 games. Like three straight 11-win seasons. Like that was, that was a legit... But it's an outlier for what South Carolina was. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. And Kentucky. It's also the peak. Yeah, it's the peak of what they've ever been, really. And that required some teams to be down. One of those teams that were down was Georgia. Georgia's not going anywhere. Georgia's there. Tennessee's on the up and up. Like, you're not going to score enough to beat Tennessee next year. That's not happening. And Florida, like, Napier's making some good. Florida was definitely down at that period, too. Yeah, and Florida might not be down for very long either. Um, we'll see with Napier and what kind of is what he puts, but like if I have to bet on between Napier and Florida, uh, Beamer and 
Carolina and uh, um, Drinkwitz and Mizzou. Like I'm probably betting on Florida figuring it out over the three, but you just look at it and you're like, where are the wins coming? Like you look at the counter, you got to play some SEC West teams that are all better than you. You've got to play Georgia. You got to play um, Tennessee. You got to play Clemson. That's unavoidable on the schedule every year. Clemson's a better program. doesn't matter how much they're falling a little bit. Um, they're still going to beat you. I, I don't know, man. Like I just, it sounds good until you go six and six, seven and five, three years in a row. And I think that's, what's going to happen with Beamer is he's going to run into a wall where it's like the fans were energized early. You got some cool transfers. And then you were like, Oh wait, we still have to actually play these games on the field. And, uh, we're not going to get enough wins because the schedule doesn't permit it. Like, if this South Carolina team was in the ACC, we'd all be like, wow, could they be North Carolina this year? Could they be 10 and 2, 11 and 1? Like, they, it's a different perspective. But in the SEC and playing a mixture of the SEC West and the East, I just don't see it. Like, I, I don't I don't buy the hype. Not not buying it. Sorry, Gamecocks fans. But to be fair to our Gamecock listeners, I'm going to be just as hard on Kentucky, just as hard on Mizzou as I am on South Carolina fans. It's just they are the. They are the soup du jour at the moment, and that will change when games actually start happening this fall. That is my prediction. It's like it's going to get ugly this fall for for the Gamecocks. Yeah, I wonder. I um, the things things do seem good. There's a good tone around the program, mm-hmm. but yeah, I think so much of it was about a down Auburn, a down Florida, and that. And then winning the bowl game, all always like six and six turns into seven and six. That season just feels so much better. But like they they weren't because Tennessee was what seven and five, and then lost the bowl game and finished seven and six. eight and four. We were we were eight and four. You sure? Uh, I'm I'm giving us some wins there. We can go back. <laughs> we can relitigate. We can relitigate. This that schedule. was right though, right? So they finished seven yeah. and six. Was, well, so, hold on. No, no, no. We're not counting the Purdue game as a loss. We're not doing that. that but, it was garbage. But I'm saying <laughs> the seven and five losing the bowl game to go to seven mm-hmm. and six, and six and six winning the bowl game to go seven yeah. and six. It just it's not the same thing. And so I feel like at the end of the day, it looks the same. And I think that's where that's where all your uh, your hatred is uh, is coming from. It's not hatred. Um, it's just not real. Like, it's not real. Like your intensity. The look at the numbers don't lie. Tennessee is in a much better place than South Carolina. Like we saw it on the field this past year without Heupel's players yet that were familiar with the scheme. And they drubbed south carolina like this game was over midway through the second quarter matt like they are going to blow south carolina off the map again tennessee owns south carolina even those good steven garcia years remember when crompton just like stomped on uh spurrier in the gamecocks in 09 like no this is he doesn't he doesn't remember that that was the uh, yeah no who doesn't who doesn't um i think that was the black jersey night actually um back in the day but yeah, oh, I don't Lane know. Lane Kiffin? Yeah. yeah, it was Lane Kiffin. Yeah. Oh, okay. I remember. Oh, those were the worst black. <laughs> those are the worst black jerseys. If they well, can just come have... up with a black helmet next year, I'm on Hold board on. with those. They have a. They have them. They. It was literally a supply chain issue. Like they could not get them. Like I that know, was but I'm not... saying they didn't wear them. But I'm saying yeah. if they're rocking the black helmet. I'll be on board with their black jerseys. Well, I think they will this fall this year. I think the Smoky Grays are coming back too. I've heard so. Um. I'm I'm here for both of those. Um, well, that's all I've got, Macarine. Um So where are you putting the over under? At, what six and a half, five and a half? I think six is about where I put it. 
like I think six, maybe five and a half. I might go five and a half. So if I put it at six and a half, I'm going under. Like just, if I put it at five and a half, I would consider the over. You're, you're going over. Okay, I would consider it. I could see that. Yeah. yeah. But I, um, I don't know. There's some swing games. You might not. We might not be given enough credit to Spencer Rattler. Okay. Just because he got benched for Caleb Williams, that doesn't mean he's not still a good player. Like, I think we we've all seen the videos of him in high school. You know, I think not a great. lot of people are just rooting against Spencer Rattler <laughs> at the end of the day. You know, it's just his vibe, whatever it is. But that doesn't mean he's not good. And also the tight end that I'm forgetting his name that they brought Sternberg or something. Stock- I was thinking Stalker, but I can't. Stock- even- well, Luke Stoke- Stalker. What is his name? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's something like that. You know what I'm talking about. Yes. And then they already have a good tight end, uh, one of the better tight ends in the SEC. So they could have some weapons. I think the I think there's just a lot of people. Stogner. Are- Stogner. Austin Stogner. Yeah, and he was a solid player for Oklahoma. But to, if Spencer Rattler could come in and actually be the second or third best quarterback in the SEC, South Carolina does have a chance to win eight, eight or more games. Like, who knows? But I just... I don't know. It remains to be seen. We'll see. We'll see. McCream, we can a follow you. A little bit of positivity there for the Gamecock fans at the end. Thank you for that. They, I'm sure they appreciate it, Matt. Um, well, don't forget, you can find Matt on Twitter at Matt underscore W underscore Green. Follow myself at Chase underscore Thomas. But every week, full ride here on this podcast feed. Um, go subscribe to the YouTube channel if you've not already done so. Uh, YouTube, Chase Thomas Podcast. Uh, subscribe, like, all that good stuff. Um, John Taylor coming on after this here on this edition of the podcast. But Matt, always a pleasure, my friend. Enjoyed the the UNG looks and uh, the shout out to Maddox before yes, we got started. Um, our unofficial shout out to mascots. Zeus as well, sir. Okay, shout out to Zeus and, and the, Khaleesi the dog. Khaleesi the dog. Khaleesi the dog. She is somewhere, probably eating uh, eating some food. That's what she does. Big eater, Khaleesi. Um, Matt Green, always a pleasure, my friend. And I will talk to you next week. Yes, sir. All right, y'all. We're back here on the Chase Thomas Podcast where my good friend, John Taylor, up there in New York City. The Big Apple is what they call it of Fangraphs.com. John, good evening, sir. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. How about yourself? Not too bad. Not too bad, my friend. Uh, anything new for you? You were you had this. You had the um, the why am I blanking on it? The skiing stories a week ago. Is there anything new? Have you have you matched it? Have you been gearing up for the X Games? Have you just been locked in on the X Games because you're an X Games guy now? Uh, I, I assume that that has just got your entire focus um, because baseball is locked out and uh, that that's your thing. You're going to pivot. Fangraphs, I've heard, is going to pivot a little bit to the X Games and to the slopes. People forget that, right? Is, is this where I mentioned the fact that the easier bid here would have just been the Olympics? I have a... Are you an Olympics guy? Before I even uh, throw this take I, I mean, out there, I'm not. I'm I'm not watching the Olympics because I yeah. I no longer have cable or any live TV streaming anything um, as a result of just various uh, to turn into like a cranky old comedian for a second. All the various like packages and and streaming subscriptions. Like I, I just can no longer keep track of what is available on anything. Mm. But 
well, you can only I think you can only watch the Olympics if you don't have cable or if you don't have uh, a satellite or whatever with the Peacock app or by signing up for Peacock. Mm-hmm. And I have chosen not to do that. Yeah. So there is literally no way for me to watch the Olympics. Although I've heard that the Olympics so far has been kind of a the usual and beast like shoddily not shoddily produced but just kind of the way the the particular way nbc does the olympics with the really strong focus on like the the personal backstory and the the very kind of pro-america rah-rah and the just the, the fact that the rest of the olympics that doesn't involve american athletes seems to exist somewhere off in the distance and we don't really talk about it it seems like that remains the case with regards to these Olympics. So I, I can't really, it doesn't really sound like I'm missing anything. I, aside, uh, from, aside from another NBC decision to do stuff like linger on Michaela Schiffer and in the aftermath of maybe the worst moment of her professional career, which again, like what, why, why are we doing that? Why, why is, why is that what matters? They, they lingered on that so long that you, they like the other competitors in the race were just not seen from that point forward. I don't even know what you're talking about. I didn't, this is how unaware I am of the Olympics in general. Like, I don't even know what you're talking about. What, what happened? What sport are we talking about here? Schifrin on, I believe it was giant slalom, uh, did not finish. She hit a, she hit a gate in a particular way. I, I, again, didn't see it. This is just one going off online. Hold on. Let's start over. You just used some words. I have no idea what you're talking about. Giant slalom. What did you just say? That's a, that's a planet. It's a a downhill ski race event. Okay. All right. We're talking about skiing. Okay. Yeah, this is a ski race event. Okay. Better, let's let's just we'll, we'll take it down. She she was disqualified during her ski race event. Yeah. Um she was in obvious emotional turmoil and agony because she had also uh, been disqualified from the previous event she'd been in earlier mm-hmm. in the Olympics. And during NBC's interview, they really were just hammering in on. But how like how have you processed this feeling? How does it truly feel? And man, to the point where you would think that once Michaela Schifrin like once Michaela Schifrin's run was over, you would think that the event had ceased to exist beyond her, that the, that the entire narrative was now Michaela Schifrin and how she feels at this, one of the worst moments in her entire life, which is also yeah. one of those things where it's like, it should be pretty obvious how she feels right now, guys. It should be it, really it remind, obvious. That, that rem- maybe we don't need to do this. That reminds me of the Cam Newton post Super Bowl interview. Oh where, yeah. Do you remember that? That was something I thought about yes. where, what is the purpose of these, interviews right after the worst moment of their careers that like uh, what do you want them to say like i i would not be good at those i would be uh i would (laughs) the whole thing with um if you don't have anything nice to say don't say anything at all that's probably what i would play there because anything i say would be quite bad in that kind of moment from me i'm with you on just i don't know what we're supposed to take away from those moments Mm -hmm. necessarily other than here is someone experiencing pain which yeah and grief which is something that should be obvious mm-hmm. it's also part of like and I, I think this is just the human proclivity toward wanting to be around positive emotions as opposed to negative ones but whenever i did cover postseason uh, baseball games i always hoped that i would you know whatever i was doing would involve the winning team because being in the clubhouse of a losing team after something like that is just it's, it's not a place you want to be because those guys also it's like I will say it's like if there's ever a moment that those guys are entitled to their privacy for as long as they deem it necessary, that might be one of those, you know, that I don't necessarily know what value we are adding in certain case, or at least with the immediate post game stuff with the, with the losing team or the losing player or the losing athlete or whatever it happens to be post game, post game stuff, 
with like enough time for everyone at least to kind of, you know, sober up emotionally, I think is one thing. But yeah, I, I don't really understand what the viewing public is supposed to gain from just seeing Michaela Schiffer in under in like severe emotional duress. I I don't really get the value of that beyond beyond the obvious TV value. But even that only has so much like I think the other part is just NBC just kind of milking it and mm-hmm. turning it into kind of the central event as opposed to, hey, there's a whole giant slalom happening here. We, you know where people are going to win medals depending on how they finish, like which is the whole point of the Olympics, ostensibly. You know, not Michaela Schifrin's personal emotional journey and ability to cope with 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 failure. You know, I mean that, that's also part of it, but that's not the point. I'm a I'm a flyover Olympic fan, where I pop in for the one thing that I like. What would you guess is the one thing I like watching in the Olympics? Uh, I would the. The really basic guess is basketball. The advanced guess is something like dressage. Ooh, close. The track. Like, I'll watch track, the races. Okay. I, I love the oh, yeah, 400. I ran track in high school, and I'm a runner, and I run every day. Like, that That interests me. I like seeing the the last little bit uh, when they're when they're nearing the finish line and just seeing how preposterous it is that these people are able to fly around a track. And as someone like... Uh, so this is something not to compare myself to an Olympian. Um, now, could I be an Olympian podcaster? Sure. Like, I, I think that's more I, I fair. I hope to God that never becomes an Olympic event. Oh, my God. John, I, I was built for that. I was built for that. Can you, what, what are the games? Is it just like you have to have like a, the most fun conversation no, with anyone no, they throw in front like, of you? It, it's, it's, I think it'd be closer to something like the NHL skills competition at their all-star mm. game where it's like fastest, fastest ad read with no mistakes. <laughs> Or the most like the the smoothest uh, yeah, the most, conversation the most, to ad read, yeah, where the most you, seamless mm-hmm, segue transition, yeah, that that would be a good one. Or just how much water can you drink? I feel like every podcaster is always about how much water can you drink. You got the big, you got the big jug of water always. Like, where is my water jug? I just drink exactly. a lot of water because I run. I don't know where uh, my water jug. But also, stay hydrated, folks. There's nothing better than uh, staying hydrated. I stick to like three different fluids i'm basically the malcolm gladwell stage of my life john because i only i only drink coffee drink it black and i drink water and then i drink hot tea at night decaf tea it's about all i drink okay i mean i i only drink water mostly and like select alcoholic beverages mm-hmm. with the occasional with the occasional juice or soda but for the most part it's really just those two those those two liquid groups I used to be a big LaCroix guy, but uh, the uh, the stomach was not handling it anymore in my 30s. Like the carbonation, I had to like kick yeah, out. Yeah, like, I, 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 I like you. Was just, I, I was pounding a Canada dry seltzer. Yeah. Just the like lemon lime one you get at the grocery mm-hmm. store. And like, I love that stuff. But when you're drinking like six cans a day, you're, you're not putting yourself in a great place. Like it actually wrecks your insides, man. Like it yeah, was so sad. Cool. I loved it so much. I loved LaCroix. Like I would have LaCroix be the presenting sponsor of this podcast, but it did so much damage because I was like you were, I was like doing half a 12 pack a day and just going through it. Cause it was just like water. And I was just pounding them like in the middle of writing. Like that was the worst part was that like, if I was on deadline or something, or I had a lot of stress, I can't do a sound of popping up in a can. What is it? That's the sound. Yeah. That one. I would just go to that. That was like a stress reliever for me, but it turns out just flooding your insides with uh, carbonation uh, is not the best. So, uh, I stay away from carbonation, generally speaking. Um, but yeah, that's I like the... That this is, I like that this episode <laughs> is now just the medical maladies of two men in their 30s. 
that's what we do, man. We just, we're like, wow, everything that we used to be able to just take for granted in our twenties is uh, not an option. If uh, we want to have a, a good transition into our old man age. Um, speaking of old man age, are you ready for today's national pastime, John? You like that transition? Uh, I mean, it makes sense and always yeah. is the answer. Okay. Uh, today in 1951, the St. Louis Browns signed Satchel Page. The 45-year-old pitcher had been out of the major leagues since last pitching for the Indians in 1949. So this man took two years off and then comes back at 45 years old to join the, the St. Louis Browns. Um, this is something, this, I read this and I was like, this, uh, uh, this would not happen today. This is not a, not a scenario that we would see play out in 2022, I don't think, right? No, I mean, I, I, part of it is because Satchel Page feels sometimes less like a real player <laughs> and more like something out of like a, a, a myth or, or legends or something. Mm-hmm. Um, Part of it, too, is just because I can't imagine any team, no team's going to want to bother with that because every team has an endless field of 22-year-olds in the minor leagues that they can just pluck out as needed. Like The idea of something like that happening is just, uh, yeah, Satchel Page was obviously a unique player in a very specific time, and his career was something that really the only thing we have, like Mini Minoso and Julio Franco are, I think, the only ones that really come to mind in terms of guys who had similar, not even shapes, but who who had that similar vein of like continuing to play into old age and occasionally like disappearing for short stretches and then coming back. And then, you know, as, as much, it seemed like as a novelty or, or an, or an admissions draw as, as anything else, obviously helped by the fact that they could still play even at their relatively advanced ages, but yeah, I, I just can't imagine any player being able to hang on that long at this point to be able to do something like that. Um, I mean, even even a guy like Ichiro by the end was just so completely, visibly done that, and he was 41, 42, I believe, at the time of his retirement. Mm. It's it's just really hard for, for a player, unless it's someone who was, you know, uh, quote unquote, like, let's just say nicely chemically aided, to make it past 40 in a way that I think they can still contribute just... Just because of baseball is just so hard now, it is so yeah. difficult. Like, it, like I think I would be curious, and this is this is I imagine a, a bigger, maybe a bigger trend if it exists that also has more components as part of it. But I do wonder if the average retirement, if the average, I mean, I know that the average age in baseball is getting younger, but I do wonder if the average retirement age is also lowering. If hmm. guys are no longer sticking around as long as they used to, or or maybe they never really stuck around as long as they used to. And my, my, my memory is just clouded by stuff like the existence of Satchel Page. But I, I would actually find that interesting is like when, what, what is, what is the retirement kind of cliff at this point for baseball players, given that on the one hand that they have better, better training and better nutrition and better sports medicine than has quite literally ever existed. But on the other hand, they also face 97 mile an hour fastballs and vicious sliders <laughs> you know, and, or they have to face, you know, 21 year old super hitters, like right out, you know, right from the get go. Yeah. I also think it's like forced retirement now that a little bit because. And that's also part of it too, that there is an economic. I was going to say that kind of skews it. I wish there was like a, a way to do that, but I don't know. I feel like that kind of. I I think it it would be something where you have to examine it from like every angle, but yeah, I, I, I imagine too, that the economic side of the middle tier free agent, who is usually a guy 
33 years or older, or who is hitting free agency for the first time at a relatively advanced age because their careers were uh, non-traditional or they just took longer to get to the majors, you know, that those guys certainly don't seem to get the benefit of, you know, those those years in their mid in your mid to late thirties, just as a kind of itinerant backup that, that seems to come to an end earlier now. Absolutely. Um, John, did you see, uh, Keith law old friend of the pod over there at the athletic? Uh, he did his, uh, grades for all 30 teams, uh, and where they stand right now in their prospect rankings. Uh, were you able to peruse this at all this week? I took a, I took a quick glance. I, I didn't really, there were no real big surprises to me. I think aside from, I mean, I, I'm not a, I'm not a super knowledgeable prospect guy. So if my super knowledge, I mean, I'm not a knowledgeable prospect guy. So I, I I'm not necessarily someone who is going to see these, these rankings and go, that makes no sense. Um, I did find it interesting to find Seattle in the top five and Arizona as well. I know Arizona is a system that when they got written up at fan graphs, that there is a lot going on there. Uh, that is, you know, like, I think as Keith notes, and I think our, our fan graphs conclusion was similar. It's not a great top 10. But there's a lot, just a lot to the system. Uh, Seattle, I imagine, you know, as Keith notes, some of that is the helium of Julio Rodriguez and, um, sorry, uh, who's the? Oh my God, the the, the Mets, Jared Kalenic. There we go. Mm. I, I just totally brain farted on that. And as he mentions, also uh, George Kirby. Mm. But also, I, I just it makes it clear that I mean, the top three systems in here: Los Angeles, Seattle, or sorry, the Dodgers, the Mariners the D-backs and extending through the top five in uh, into Tampa at number four and including Cleveland or sorry, Cleveland Pittsburgh at number six, you're really seeing that the one, obviously that the, the systems that rank the highest are the ones that have a ton of depth. Like we just fan graphs. We just ran our, our top, our top pirates prospect list, say that 10 times fast. <laughs> and it went up to 61 prospects. Wow. And that's 61 ranked guys. There was still another 20 or so beyond that, that our prospect folks, you know, had something to say about or who are worth noting in some capacity or another. I'm sure, you know, I, I don't remember off the top of my head. I don't think we have gotten to the Dodgers yet. I am sure that one is going to be a very, very long list. Um, They're number one, yeah, by the way, on this list, folks. Um, the Dodgers, which is still just like preposterous to me that they're number one still with all the call ups with everything they've moved. Like they're still number one. Like it's not they're operating on a different planet than everybody else. Yes, because they are, as, as Keith notes, and is, is kind of a common knowledge around baseball, they are the best at drafting, scouting, and developing. They mm. are just number one. I think, you know, Tampa is the other team that always gets talked about in, in that same uh, sphere. But obviously, the resources that they're using, not nearly on par with what the Dodgers have. Yeah, it, it is just a testament to how far you can get with a lot of money, but also just with pure intelligence, you know, which is... Obviously, we don't know exactly what the Dodgers are doing and everything that when it comes to the world of scouting and, and everything and, and international amateurs and all that fun stuff is delightfully tainted. But yeah, it is a testament to the value of just building a depth. I mean, you see the biggest jumps in this in, in, Keith's, in Keith's stuff is, you know, Pittsburgh went from 16 to 6. Kansas City went from 15 to 7. Like a lot of that is just replenishing depth. On the flip side, you have Cleveland, which went from number two to number eight, in part because it has lost a bit of that depth. And part of that is just they've, they've not had some great draft results. But at the same time, like that is the value of, of what the Dodgers do, is they have a, a self-replenishing player machine, essentially, where no matter who they lose, there is always theoretically someone available in their system who can, at the very least, 
you know, help fill the void until it is completely, until the, a, a total complete replacement is there. Or who's even better in the first place? Like, you know, the, the Dodgers has lost Corey Seager, but they're probably going to be fine because they have, you know, some combo of, of Gavin Lux and other guys to help, to help fill that. Like, there's always... There's always money in in the Dodgers in the Dodgers banana stand. I guess is one way of putting it. Yeah. Um, what's not good if you're a fan of like um, the Phillies being where they are is kind of un- it's like the ones where I was looking at it and I was just perusing their pipeline and all that kind of stuff. Like if you're, I, I would be annoyed if I'm like, who's a good example of this? Like, um, let's throw out uh, the Rockies. Uh, who we'll talk about in a second number 25 in a rebuilding situation this is not okay like you there's no excuse if you're gonna be bad and you're just gonna be one of the worst teams in baseball you better be in the top 10 in the farm you better be developing guys and then you have them down there at 25 and also the a's man 29th they're about to fall off a cliff a little bit um i mean part of that i guess is kyler not picking the a's but i don't know man that's pretty bad like the a's might be in a pretty pretty dubious uh, doom and gloom type situation uh, for the foreseeable future. And then the White Sox, we should mention, comes in at number 30. But, hey, the White Sox are going to be winning the division for the next couple of years or right there in the thick of things. So you can let that slide kind of like the Nationals who were up there where they were they were really going for it. So if your team's going in the playoffs every year, it, it's not great. And it's something in the back of your mind that your team uh, is not exactly uh loaded in the farm system but at least you're you're winning with uh the town on the field but if you're bad on the field and your farm sucks man that is a that is a bad place to be yeah and i think the 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 teams obviously that stand out on these rankings are not so much the ones that took big leaps or big falls because big leaps happen if you if you have a bumper crop of prospects or if you make a bunch of trades to get a bunch of better prospects and falls happen if like i think too the one that really stood out to me is a team that that fell a lot on his rankings uh, for a particular reason was Atlanta or not, sorry, not Atlanta um, was San Diego in mm. part because they've used that farm system as Keith notes to, to make a lot of trades recently. And, you know, some of that is there are other reasons why the Padres have fallen, but that, that is a big part of it. Um, I, I think that the teams that really kind of stand to me are the ones that have barely moved like the angels, for example, who were 23rd last year and 23rd this year. Like there is probably some improvement coming there, but like, you know, the teams toward the bottom here, I think, like Milwaukee, for example, is another one that, you know, has not really done well with regards to its farm system in recent years. And that has, you know, with these with the except with a few exceptions, really not many exceptions. Um, I don't know. It, it's just it's, and like you said, the Phillies too being a, a team down here, you know, a bad team on the field and pretty much a bad one off of it. And the A's too are the A's too are, I guess, headed for that direction. So yeah, I guess you, you kind of want to try to, I, I think it helps to try to figure out like, okay, are these teams stagnant? Is there something wrong? Like, is this just a result of bad luck? Like what I, I've always find it more interesting kind of at the bottom of the list to figure out what's going on here. Exactly. You know what, like number 30 being the white Sox, like that's probably a surprise to anyone who just kind of checks in on prospect rankings every now and again, it was like, wait, I thought Chicago had a great farm. And like Keith explains it very well, but it's like, you know, what, what, is that, you know, is, is that going to carry over for the future? Or is that just, is that just for now? It's like where it's almost like kind of a use a, a way of using farm system rankings is kind of your just overall organizational rankings, which doesn't entirely work because you can be a good organization with just a, an intermediately weak farm system. 
that's, I think it's, I think it's why it's worth focusing on those kind of low twenties teams that don't really seem to move like the angels or like the Rockies where it's like, no, something just seems out and out wrong there, you know? Yeah. Well, uh, John, we'll leave it there on the prospect rankings. Uh, speaking of Colorado, Bud Black gets a contract extension in Colorado. Uh, and the crowd goes wild, John. Yeah, sure. I mean, great, great stuff. Great, yeah, great I, stuff. I don't really understand why he wants to stay there longer. Like, I would think at this point, like, like managing the Rockies must be exhausting. Like, you never win. You yeah. have to sit through so many four-hour games that are like nine to seven. All the times you have to walk out to the bullpen or to the mound to make a to make a pitching change, like I don't know. I mean, if this is what Bud Black wants, great. It's pretty clear that the Rockies don't really seem to care what happens on the field anymore at this point. So, you know, I, I imagine for them, you know, it's just about the consistency of having Bud Black. But yeah, I, like you said, the crowd goes wild. It's it is status quo in a place where, if nothing else, it feels like they really, really need not status quo. But at the same time, I'm also not sure that the that you could trust the current Rockies to do any better than Bud Black. So, hey. <laughs> yeah, it's not really a job anyone wants to sign up for because there's no chance of winning. Like, there's no you're just going to destroy your win loss record. No, in I think, baseball I think reference. you can make that if the, if you're the Rockies, instead of just keeping Bud Black around to be Bud Black for no real reason, mm-hmm. you know, try to find a, a potentially young and up and up and coming. Uh, managerial candidate or someone you just try try something out of the box try something different try something try anything it just feels weird to be a team that is just so kind of mired in a particular state of not even mediocrity the Rockies aren't even mediocre they're just bad and they don't really ever do anything to improve that and I don't think replacing Bud Black would really make much of a difference but it's also like it's also not clear that Bud Black really brings anything to the table here that's making any positive difference anyway but like I said, the Rockies just seem committed to to this weird, pointless status quo. So, hey, good for them, I guess. I don't know. It feels kind of sad talking about the Rockies at a certain point. Like they're they are never going to get better, at least with this ownership group. Just, it's just not possible. It's it's you're talking about a house where it's like you were debating whether or not. I guess what we're essentially doing is debating whether or not we like the refrigerator in a house that doesn't have doors. Like that's not the main issue here right now. Mm-hmm. Or a house that has a rotten foundation, I guess, would be a better way to put that. Yeah. Um, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. Um, but what is interesting, another, speaking of rotten foundations, uh, the Chicago Cubs, uh, as of late, um, in the last, what, year and a half, two years, of the way they've gone about their business up there in uh, in Chicago, um, they uh, they might be going after the old friend, Mr. Rizzo. I don't, I saw this rumor this week and I, I don't understand this one. Like, let's just group this together, John. I think these three, cause they're all first basemen and it's all fascinating. Only one of these three, John went to my alma mater and only one of these three have a brother that I shared a homeroom with my senior year. Can you name which one? Is it Matt Olson? It is Matt Olson. Okay. Um, one like also just one of the smoothest high school swings I've ever seen in person. Like just the power that the the way the ball carried off his bat in high school was just preposterous. Like the the little effort it looked like he had to give uh, to hit a ball just blasted out of uh, the the friendly confines down there in Lilburn, Georgia. Uh, it was it's pretty wild. He was one of one of the craziest uh, high school players I've ever seen in person. Um, all that being said. 
Cubs going after Rizzo, Freddie Freeman, who is now being linked to the New York Yankees, and then the Rangers. Remember how I told you last week, John? I told you last week, or I guess I hypothesized that I am not entirely certain the Rangers are done spending and that the Rangers might, I think there might be some pressure up top to fix this stuff. They're in the new ballpark. The The rebuild hasn't gone well. John Daniels in a different made up role at the top of the food chain, not the, the main signal caller anymore. But like, I don't know, man. I think the Rangers are really going to try and go zero to 60 next year. I think they want to ensure they win the AL West. And I, I would not be surprised if they stay more active and they try and buy their way a pennant uh, next year. And it, granted, there being a 2022 MLB season, um, but what do you what do you like about those three? Which one, if you had to rank them in order of most likely, how would you do it? In terms of which would like I, they they all feel unlikely in different ways. I think hmm. Rizzo to the Rizzo to the Cubs. I, I don't really want to focus on much because I, the Cubs are not particularly don't I don't think they're going to particularly matter. Well. They might matter next year, but I think at best they're going to be a 500 team. The only and reason Rizzo, that they're going to matter a little bit is because they're division. It's just like the weird inverse of the, the White Sox and the AL Central. It's just the NL Central is just going to be there for them to exist and do enough to yeah. uh, pseudo contend. Well, I, I think I'm less interested in that one just also because it's pretty clear that Rizzo is now on the downside, is on the, the, the downside of his career. Mm. And regardless of where he goes, it's pretty unlikely he's going to be an impact hitter or an impact player. So... If he decides for whatever reason he wants to go back to Chicago after they showed approximately 0.0% interest in, in keeping him around and dealt him for basically nothing and broke up the whole band, I mean, that's that's his decision. But I I, I can't really say I'm, you know, wherever he ends up, it's going to be either Chicago, which you go, okay, cool, or another uniform where you're going to see him in the other uniform and you're going to go, oh, that's a little weird, and then move on. But I don't I don't really see I mean Freddie Freeman makes a ton of sense on the Yankees and that Freddie Freeman makes a ton of sense on any even baseball because he's arguably the best first baseman in baseball. Mm. But if this is a Yankees team that basically said thanks but no thanks to all the major good shortstop options on the market, which I know you can make the argument, oh, they've got Anthony Volpe and Oswaldo Peraza, they don't need to sign Carlos whatever, you know, you could that that clearly is also dictated by finances. And while it's mm. pretty clear that the Yankees, or at least um, from my understanding, the Yankees farm system, they do not have an Anthony Volpe type coming at first base. And first base was a problem for them last year and that Luke Voigt uh, both could not stay healthy and was not nearly the same hitter he was during his uh, post-trade breakout. He definitely fills a hole there, but it's just, it is really hard to imagine the Yankees meet, meeting the price that Freeman is going to want, which is almost certainly going to be something in the realm of like 200 million plus. Correct. Mm-hmm. I just like the Yankees haven't done that in a bit now. Aside from Garrett Cole, we really have not seen them drop that kind of cash in a bit. But if you, anyone's going to do it, it's the Yankees. And to add to it, we've talked about it. They might have to like to really realistically contend in the AL, especially in the AL East where the blue Jays are coming. The blue Jays almost popped in this past year. Um, The Red Sox, I don't think are going away. And then the Rays just being the Rays. I don't know. Like, I think they have to kind of get even bolder and spend more money than uh, the Steinbrenner brothers may want to do at this point. But like fans are getting, they're getting antsy in the Bronx. 
Yeah, and I mean, that that might be part of it, but I just, again, this Yankees team has just shown that it doesn't really care about spending. I imagine part of their part of their being quiet over this, at least over the first stretch of the offseason, was just waiting to see what the post-lockout situation would look like and what a new CBA would look like and all that other fun stuff. And I do think that there is a, a, a chance that if Freeman were to, if if it's really, if it really is the case that Atlanta will not bring him back, but only will only bring him back at one particular price and that the market for him is otherwise slow. And maybe there can be something done on a short pillow deal of some kind. Maybe if he'd be willing to do that, Mm. I don't know. It it just seems really hard though, to imagine the Yankees handing out the kind of long-term deal, at least in terms of years and total and total guaranteed money that he, that Freeman would be looking for when they already have, uh, you know, the, two $300 million contracts on the books or whatever is left of, of Stanton's plus the need to give Aaron judge a big long-term deal soon, because he will be a free agent. I believe after the 2023 season, if not after the 2022 season, they need to figure out what the future of Aaron judge is on that team. And Aaron judge is almost certainly going to ask for a Mookie Betts type contract, which he would deserve 100%. So if you're the Yankees and you already have Garrett Cole on your books, and you have Giancarlo Stan on your books, and you you are going to want to explore what an Aaron Judge extension looks like, et cetera, et cetera. On top of all the other financial commitments you have or will make as as the New York Yankees, you know if they believe Freddie Freeman is the thing that pushes them over the top, sure. But I think that'd be way more likely that they would go after Matt Olson because I think the I have the option of Matt Olson being on any team, Texas, the Yankees, whoever it is who needs first base help, is the most likely of any of these. Because all Matt Olson is going to cost is like two prospects, two good prospects in regard, like to be fair, but two prospects, maybe three, and whatever is left on his contract for this year, and uh, and then that's it because I believe he's a free agent after that. So I think team, I think a team like the Yankees would be more willing to meet whatever price Oakland wants to set for Matt Olson, if only because that doesn't complicate their long term financial situation, than they would to try to sign. Freddie Freeman to any kind of deal, which I, I can't imagine he's going to settle for anything less than five or six years. Even, even if we come out of the lockout, whenever this ends with no sign that he has any suitor, but Atlanta and that Atlanta will only bring him back at one particular price. I still don't see how he asks how he, how I don't he think really, it's the price in Atlanta, by the way, I think it's the years. I think that would be the case. I think that's the case everywhere is that nobody wants to pay a 33 or nobody wants to give, a 33-year-old first baseman, a contract presumably longer than three or four years mm. because everyone is terrified, presumably, of what happened to Albert Pujols and also the fact that players from 33 onward, it's like it. time always wins, you know, as good as Freddie Freeman is. And you can pretty much guarantee that the next two or three years, he will probably still be his close-to-peak Freddie Freeman self. Mm. You know, no team wants to deal with anything after that. So I... But my argument with that is just that, like, man, you just won the title. Who cares? Like, you have this. No, I mean, I. It, it's not I, all of it. All of this has a caveat of it's not my money. It's not my team. Who cares if it were? If I were the owner of Atlanta, I would just. T- I would give Freddie Freeman a blank piece of paper and be like, just write down whatever you want, and we will do it. Like, mm. it, it makes it makes no sense to me on multiple levels for Atlanta to be, you know, pow- or to be penny wise with this particular player. I get it. But I, I, but at the same time, I, I just don't think it's smart. I think though that the appeal of Freeman to other, like, I think it's a different. Obviously, it is a different thing for Atlanta to negotiate with him with other than with other teams. 
But I also think the flip side of that is that while Freeman might be willing to work with the Braves to take a deal that maybe is not what he exactly went into into free agency hoping to get, but ultimately he takes it because he wants to be in Atlanta. He he he's his home or whatever you know whatever nice things he has to say about the greater Atlanta metropolitan area. I don't think that exists for other teams. I think for other teams, it's going to be a much harder, like, no, here's what I want. You give it to me or you don't, because I have no attachment and no, and no particular love for you. I mean, unless there's some home, where, where is Freddie Freeman from? Uh, California. Okay. So I, unless one of the California teams comes calling and he's just always had the desire to be a Dodger or a giant or, you know, mm. an A or, or whatever part of, of California is exactly he's from. Also Canada I, for some reason. I think he like was born like he has some weird Canadian connection too. I should probably know this off the top of my head. Like him and Joey Votto, like Canada's greatest export is just uh, <laughs> like patient slugging first baseman. It's great. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, the, I just think that Freeman and presumably what he's going to be looking for is probably going to be the reason why I would expect an Olsen trade before there's a Freeman signing. Oh, his parents are from Canada. So he holds okay. dual citizenship. Yeah, oh, that's, that's what cool. it is. But yeah, I, I, I just I just don't think we're going to see Freeman. I, I don't think Freddie Freeman would be willing to sign the deal that the Yankees are going to offer him, which is probably going to be one of those like th- which would probably be like a 390 type deal or something like that. Because I also think he does not want to try this again at the age of 36, because he knows at that point I ain't getting money from anybody. Yeah. Well, we shall see, John. We shall see. Um well, let's get into... Oh, just kidding. We have one more thing because we always have to shout out one of my favorite pieces on Fangraphs.com because uh, guess what? When Fangraphs is a part of this show every week, John, we have to make sure that uh, we shout out the good folks over there at Fangraphs.com where they now have images for their website. It, it discombobulates me every week, John, or every it, day. It's rather. wild. Like, it, I, I still get confused sometimes when I see them. I mean, it's like 10 plus years of me checking this site that never had images. And now you just plop images over there and I'm supposed to just go with it. Um, I don't do well with change. Life is about change and life is about adapting to change. Disagree, John. We have been doing this podcast weekly for years now. No change in sight. No, change is not always a good thing, I think. I I think it can be a good thing for our readers. Although I will say we have introduced Mm. a new feature. If you're a Fangraphs member, and mm. you find the images like Chase does scary and upsetting, <laughs> you can turn them off. We have a. I didn't you know, say it was upsetting. It's not. Upsetting. I mean, that, that's just what I got. Is is basically it's like not, you know yeah. how like if you like when you put a baby in front of like a mirror and it doesn't really understand it for a second because mm. you know it's a baby. Yeah. Same thing here. Okay. Do babies not understand mirrors? I knew those animals. Know. I just, like, I just you went baby that. there. I don't okay. know. Like how many? Like how many times does a baby have to see its own reflection before it gets that it's its reflection? It's a good question. Depends on how smart the baby is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what if that was the way we decided, like, as a society, like, where a kid was going to go and, like, what kind of placement uh, they were going to go in? It's like, how quickly did they recognize their own reflection in a mirror? That would Congrats, be... Congrats, you've just come up with the basic plot outline for a, a dystopian young adult novel. Or a Black Mirror episode. I, uh, I miss Black Mirror. Great show. Um... John, last thing before we talk about the Texas Rangers, because we are now in the AL West in our season review series here on the Chase Most Podcast. Um, John, the Baltimore Orioles. So on Fangraphs.com, as I cited, uh, Eric Longenhagen and Kevin Goldstein did a great uh, piece on the Baltimore Orioles top twenty, uh, top forty-five prospects. Rather, 
I'm excited for Adley Rutschman. Uh, everyone's excited about Grayson Rodriguez. Here's my thing on Grayson Rodriguez, John. Um, he is a Baltimore Orioles pitcher. So I'm going to hold my breath on him or Hall or whoever because uh, the history is not kind to these guys while they're still a uh, Baltimore Orioles. So I'm going to go with the catcher uh, and the, the history of success there with uh, Mr. Rutschman. But um, when you look at this list, who stands out to you? Who excites you the most? Can we see more than one of these guys on the main roster this year? I think we see Rutschman for sure because there's simply mm. no point in keeping him down in AAA. He's too good for it. Mm. And he's already 24 because he's a college draft pick. Like, you need, And you also, I think if you're the Orioles, you need to find out pretty much as soon as possible if he's the guy. Everything he's he's done so far would seem to suggest that, yes, he is the guy. But there's clearly nothing he can learn or improve or, or do anything with a AAA. Like, this this is a guy, prospect-wise, that even, just, even the obvious joke that is that we're sending him down for his defense would be an absolute mockery because he is widely regarded as the best defensive catcher not just in the minors but once he gets up to the majors he will probably be one of its best defensive catchers there too so yeah Rutschman I think is a guarantee who will be up at some point in 2022 beyond that I I imagine if DL Hall can get healthy and stay healthy maybe we see him toward the back of the year if Rodriguez absolutely destroys his competition in double and triple a maybe we would see him as well but I think the thing, as we've talked about with the Orioles, is for them right now, beyond Rutschman and whatever guys are in the high minors who, you know, uh, I think like, you know, we have here on our list like Kyle Bradish and Kyle Stowers who might, or, you know, further down this list, Mike Bauman or J- maybe less so Jemai Jones, you know, guys who are cl- did he Did he leave the ringer? Yeah, I mean, it, it's funny every time because <laughs> liter- they're literally both Michael Bauman. Um, mm-hmm. But yes. I think those are the guys you'd be more likely to see in 2022 because they want to, because those are the guys who are closest. I think those are the guys who they, the Orioles most need to see right now. Are they, you know, are they, are they part of this next good team or are they guys we can move on from? I think they probably feel good about Rodriguez being part of that, even if it's not 2022. And then beyond that, if you look at our, if you look at our top list, again, a very deep one, there are 41, 45 guys listed on the, on our, or 45 guys ranked on our, on this Orioles list. But that middle group from Colton Kowser through about Reed Trimble or so, even though we'll call it from about really from number four through number 20, the system has a lot of guys who are not particularly close to the majors yet. Uh, Colton Kowser only got as high as A-ball last year. Kobe Mayo only got as high as A-ball. Gunnar Henderson got as high as double A, but still hasn't turned 21 yet. And I imagine the Orioles are probably not in any interest to rush a kid under 21 years old who just got the double A. You know, Jordan Westberg is still only at double A. Heston Kierstad uh, didn't get above rookie ball. Like, there are a lot of guys who they have yet to see what they can do, really even in a full season, I think, of minor league baseball. So I imagine, you know, there, there's a lot of good upside in that portion of the system. It's just still kind of far away. And it maybe not, maybe not, I don't think it's necessarily more than, say, two or three years in the case of some of these guys. But it's mm-hmm. not something where I think we're going to see anyone beyond Rutschman this year. And probably, you know, I think Rodriguez, if not this year, next year. Hall, if not this year, next year, if he can stay healthy. And then we're t- But then at that point, we're talking about guys like maybe if, if Kierstad takes a leap and can stay healthy. Or if someone like Bauman or Bradish or Stowers, you know, ha- has a little more juice. In, well, and Bradish or Stowers, I think, are, are definitely better prospects than Bauman. But it's going to be guys closer to that. The next wave of impact guys in the system probably is more than two years away, hmm. which 
I, I think as we noted before, creates issues. So then, okay, if that's the case, what do the Orioles do for the next two years? Uh, they should the spend rebuild. money is what I would say. Right. They should presumably go into Tigers mode and start mm. actually handing out money to free agents. But yeah, I, I think this is the thing about that rebuild that we've talked about in the past. That all it's produced right now in terms of guys who, are, who look like they're ready to be contributors or who will be significant contributors, Rutschman and Rodriguez. That's really it. The rest we have yet to see because either it is it is still early in the in the development for a lot of these guys or because, you know, that system just really was very, very weak to start with. And it only now has begun to especially uh, in, Keith noted in his organizational rankings of the Orioles have finally started to spend money in Latin America in the last few years. Uh, it, it has taken some time, I think, for the rest of this rebuild to get going. And the end result is going to be that, yeah, it, it, it is just going to be, if this rebuild ever does finish, a particularly long one. Yeah, I don't think it's going to it's gonna change anytime soon, John. I think this rebuild is going to be as painful. I will say, though, D.L. Hall, who I just uh, looked a little bit more into, he, because uh, he looked like a Georgia kid to me. Like, uh, there's just some people I can just, I can spot. I'm like, oh, that is some Buster Poseyitis if I've ever seen it. And uh, my guy from Valdosta, Georgia, he is the most Valdosta, Georgia-looking starting pitcher I've ever seen. What, and what's his full name? Uh, that's a good question. It's got to be Dallas. Let me see. D.L. Hall. Um, let me see here. It's got to be... Oh, Dayton. I was close. Dayton wow. Lane. Dayton, Dayton Lane. Lane Hall is... <laughs> Man, that is... Did you... One of the, one of the things I always enjoyed about uh, the, the now dearly departed Every Day Shall Be Saturday site was their occasional how Georgia is this crime ranking, <laughs> which included the pyramid of Georgia rankings where the I think the bottom was Crokies and the top mm. was Zaxby's. Yeah. Um, Both good they things, also, though. They would also, I believe as Spencer Hall usually did, them would rank it. Would, part of the ranking would be how Georgia is the name. Mm. Dayton Lane Hall feels yeah, like mm. pretty Georgia to me. That it's, I mean, it's pretty Georgia. I won't lie. Uh, I won't lie. Buster also, that, Posey's that, pretty Georgia. that young man as an Orioles JD Drew. DL. Mm-hmm. Well, JD Drew I always loved because it's it's David Jonathan Drew, but then he just switched yeah. the order for his initials for some reason. That's true. He could that have is... been DJ Drew. How cool would that? <laughs> I don't think he has the same career. No, I think JD Drew is a different career. DJ Drew is a cleanup guy. JD Drew is a is a different kind of player altogether. Yeah, I think you approach them differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, John, let's wrap with our Texas Rangers season review. Uh, it was not good. Uh, you're not going to no. believe this, but the Rangers were quite bad again in 2021, but they uh, looked to remedy that situation by um, just spending all of the money, which is good. Uh, they're in a sneaky big market that we've just kind of moved on from, but it's like, no, Dallas and the Rangers, they should spend money. They should actually be... Uh, one of the bigger spenders in Major League Baseball. And I guess they got tired of the Houston Astros just dominating the state for for several years now. And uh, they got active. And I'm I'm curious. They're they're feisty going into next year. They are an intri- like they are the most interesting team to me in the AL uh, next year, outside of maybe the Blue Jays, because I wonder if the Blue Jays get better and I wonder if they just make that leap and they're they're the best team in the AL East, which would be super fascinating. But um outside of that man what uh what do you make of the 2021 rangers what happened what actually went right for them um what what do you make of them yeah i mean 
I don't know how much there is to make of the 2021 Rangers. Like you said, they were just bad, and they were supposed to be bad. They were they were a team that we no one had any particular. I think, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, no one, no one thought they were going to be of anything more than I think a 70 some win team, and that's pretty much what they ended up being because they came into the season with a bad offense, a pretty mediocre rotation, despite their uh, annual old pitcher reclamation. In this case, Kyle Gibson, who they mm-hmm. ended up moving anyway a bad bullpen and a farm system that is improving, but that didn't really have anything near the high minor or in the high minors that would suggest any kind of immediate turnaround. So, you know, the the 2021 Rangers did what they were supposed to do, which is to say they lost. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing, obviously, is like you said, the fact that they seem determined to buy their way out of it in signing Marcus Semyon and Corey Seager and John Gray. Um, They have definitely at least positioned themselves to be better. I think you can pretty confidently say that the 2022 Rangers barring uh, injuries to those three guys in particular, should be a better team. The question I have is, did 2021, with regards to the Rangers, unearth anything that, or I guess, what of the 2021? Because the good things we talk about with the 2022 Rangers are the guys who weren't there, Seager and Semyon and John Gray. You know, but what about the guys who are there? Is there anything you can really kind of count on when it comes to the rest of that roster and what 2021 unearthed? And right now, the right now, my feeling is, I don't know. Like this is this is a better team, but I don't think it's necessarily a good team right now. You look at I'm looking, for example, at the the Zips projections that Dan Zimborski ran on on Texas uh, about about a month or so ago. He has Semyon projected for a 4.7 WAR season and Seager projected for a 4.5 WAR season. That's great. Next on that list is Josh Young, who is currently one in the minors and two. Well, I don't really need to go beyond that. He's in the minors. He's projected a 2.2. Keep in mind, anything about 2.5 is considered to be about all-star plus. 2.5 and above is because we all-star level. Somewhere in the 1.5 to 2.5 range is usually considered to be an acceptable starter. Next up is Isaiah Kiner-Falefa, whose war projection is 2.2. And most of that, I imagine, is defensive because he's not a particularly good hitter. Followed by Nate Le- Nate Lowe at two point one, followed by Adolis Garcia at one point eight, followed by Andy Ibanez at one point eight, and then followed by and then I'm going to cut it off here because everyone everyone at this point is one or, or below, which is to say they're basically a replacement level player is Nick Solak at one point three. That's that's their offense. Their offense is pretty much just Semyon and Seeger. There's nothing else there right now, and they have not really, with the exception of Young, whenever it is he comes up, they ha- don't really have anyone developed yet to kind of step into those places where they need help, in particular the outfield. And this is a situation where, you know, I, I agree with you. I do not think the Rangers are done. And mm-hmm. or at the very least, I don't think they should be done if they intend to contend in 2022 with this roster. If the point of signing Semyon and Seeger was to be better in 2022 and maybe contend, but, you know, also let's develop some young guys and whatever, that's one thing. But I think at least, at least in the outfield, you know, where you're talking about, like, you're giving – you have playing time. The Rangers currently have playing time apportioned to Cole Calhoun. That just that shouldn't happen. Like I know Adolis Garcia is both young and fun, and he's got a ton of power. But the dude is also not a particularly good hitter. He's projected for a two eighty on base percentage next year. Oof. You know, Leody Tavares has not really shown he can hit at any level. He's a great defender, but you know, it, it just raises the question of, you know. What what is this Texas team going to look like? Is it going to be Semyon and Seager and then a bunch of of young guys trying to you know, and then trying to strike lightning with a bunch of young guys? 
or once the offseason, I guess, so to speak, once the lockout ends, are we going to see Texas going after guys like uh, Nick Castellanos, perhaps, or, you know, any of the other still available free agent hitters? Because part of the problem for them is pitching wise, there's not really a whole lot left. Carlos Rodon is the obvious one, but, you know, we shall see there. I also think they have more interesting things going on pitching wise than they do offensively. At least if you want to try to find the upside in Dane Dunning and, and Spencer Howard and Glenn Otto and AJ Alexi and all those guys and Taylor. We Hurt should also well. mi- we should also mention that uh, Jordan Lyles did not fit the reclamation project uh, in Texas. He ended well, the no, streak. Because there, there is only so much you can do. And Jordan Lyles is pretty much the human equivalent of like the, the point of like, OK, even we can't fix this. <laughs> Jordan, Jordan, like there's like if you can fix Jordan Lyles, you're some kind of wizard, man. Yeah. Kyle like Gibson that, at age 33 with the, at, least, at least Kyle yeah. Gibson has an elite pitch, you know, and that's true of his, you know what Jordan Lyles very much felt like an, a different kind of Rangers move, which was, well, somebody has to throw in. <laughs> so why not this guy? You know, you always uh, love those guys. You love those guys. I mean, that's what they were basically doing with Mike Fulton Avitz. So, uh, happy. Goodness gracious. He, he got 24 up. starts for them last year. Fulty fell off a cliff, man. And also he is amazingly almost 30 already. That man is 29. He started a playoff game, a critical playoff game for the Braves. No more than what, what was that? The Cardinals series. Was that two years ago? Three years ago? I don't know. Time. Three years ago. I believe. Three yeah, years his, ago. His now. fall from that point. Has yes. Been a he never got over it. Um, it, it really, that, I mean, that, that really, his career really did just fall apart at that point. That was but, the worst baseball moment of my life. I, I still will remember where I was and just the, the sadness overwhelmed me and just the, the absolute absurdity of what was happening. Um, cause it, 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 there's just nothing like it. It's not like football. It's not like basketball where you still can like talk yourself into a comeback. What happened in the first inning is, uh, is a crime, John. It's a crime. Yeah, it still it, it haunts not, me. It was not great. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think the problem with Texas is Semyon and Seeger both help a lot with regards to 2022 and the future because neither second base nor shortstop seems like a position that Texas really had anything going on with uh, down within the system or at least it, within the system enough to, you know, to, to, to or not to worry about blocking them with those two guys. I think honestly, you know, as bad as the lineup is, there's really very little pitching help or very little pitching stability and depth too. Like I, I started to worry, like looking at Texas, that Semyon and Seeger aren't so much a bid for instant contention is kind of just the first step. Because I think at this point, like I don't really see how Texas finishes doing what like they're not they're not close, they're not done, and I don't think they're particularly close to done. And I think in order to get closer to done, they would have to, for starters go back in time and sign one or two more of those free agent pitchers or at least more of those relievers. I mean, I haven't taken a, I don't know exactly who's available still in the reliever market. Maybe Kenley Jansen is a guy that they take a gamble on and they feel like a better guy, or maybe, maybe they can finagle a trade for Craig Kimbrell if they eat enough of the money, but their options in terms of adding talent to this roster outside of trades, not all that, not all that great right now, and they have a lot of holes that they would that they need to address if they want this team to be an actual contender. I think with Semyon and Seager and a few extra, like a few smaller moves, yeah, this team may this team maybe is like a five hundred squad. You know, maybe we're talking about them as a wild card team or something. But I don't really see the I don't really see any reason to think better of them right now. And I think that if they do want to be more than that, at least in 2022, then they need to do more. Otherwise, and I think we're looking at 2023, depending on 
what the Rangers do both in the coming season and that and that following off season as a year when we can really start to look at this team as as a true contender again. John Taylor, fangraphs.com. Go subscribe, become a member if you have not already done so. Follow you on Twitter at J A Taylor. Keep up the good work, sir. Uh, tell all the good folks over there, Jay Jaffe, my my guy, Dan Zembrowski, everybody uh, over there, keep churning out the good content while baseball is away. Hopefully baseball soon because college baseball, John, I don't know if you knew this or not. It's back in a little over a week. Uh, wow. No no lockout in the NCAA, huh? No, I'm I'm so excited to... We are, to ha- we are we're mm-hmm. all going to have to just get on the college, the college baseball bandwagon, aren't we? You get a metal ping sound. What more do you need, John? You get the ping back. Who doesn't want a ping sound? I just want Major League Baseball back. Why can't you have both, John? Why can't you have both? This is your time to get invested emotionally for me in the Tennessee Volunteers. Like Columbia, I don't know what their their baseball team's like, but they're fine. They've won the Ivy League a few times. Okay. Lou Gehrig used to play on the Columbia baseball team. Did he really? Yeah. Huh. Okay. Not bad. Not bad, not bad, but did Drew bad, yeah. Gilbert play on the Columbia? No, he's a he's a Tennessee volunteer, John. Jordan Beck, we're ready for it. Um, yeah, there you go. Tennessee balls uh, in a little over a week. I'm very, very excited. I, I love sitting at baseball games and eating some hot dogs and just uh, just enjoying, enjoying the sights and enjoying some uh, metal he- hits ball. All right, I'm done. Uh, John Taylor, thank you as always, and I will talk to you next week. Later, man. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah.